0: Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be an alien, to experience a totally different physical shape? The possibilities are endless. How many limbs? How many eyes? How many sexes? What if your consciousness could, if it were strong enough, leap into another body to walk around on an alien planet? Today, we'll be exploring that very subject, and maybe, just maybe, meeting a few fellow body jumpers along the way. Warning. Today's book covers topics like sex that I don't want to glance over. I don't want to alienate anybody, but I want to explore what the author was trying to do with this story. We will be talking about gender, sex, and war. If you are not comfortable with this subject matter, especially when it comes to discussion of non-consensual acts, please listen with caution. Thanks. Thanks. Hello, Earthlings and Spacelings. Welcome to Season 2 of the Fantasy Podcast. I didn't mean to take such a long break from making regular episodes, but I'm back at it. This podcast is your portal into science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. We cover them here because they're too old, too weird, or you already saw the movie. And we'll be more or less following this order. Obscure, classic, weird, and children's books. I'm your host, Erica Brickley. Check out my Instagram, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and ring the bell to be notified so you don't miss any episodes. Thanks, guys. Anyone who follows me on Instagram, at Erica knows that I am especially obsessed with two people's work, Anne McCaffrey and Wayne Barlow. Anyone who has listened to other episodes of the Fantasy podcast knows that I love McCaffrey's work partly because it helped me graduate from children's books into more grown-up literature. I was really stuck in a rut, not progressing in my tastes and skills like my classmates were. To be fair, the standards I was being compared to were pretty high. Most people I grew up with were the children of college professors or administrators, and my parents were avid readers, too that makes it more amusing that finding McCaffrey's Dragonflight at age 12 rocketed me past my peers so that I skipped series like Artemis Fowl in favor of obscure science fiction from the 1950s and 70s written for adults. My other obsession was born out of a chance encounter at a library book sale. I found a copy of Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials sitting on the children's book table. Possibly because someone left it there. Possibly because it was mistaken to be a picture book. I remember staring at it for a few seconds, wondering if someone else would come back to find their treasure stolen if I took it. But that didn't stop me. (laughs) I snatched it like the very essence of the book would fade away. As if it were something wonderful I dreamed up. An encyclopedia of aliens... I already loved the X-Men Encyclopedia and the Pokedex, books with pictures of creatures or characters with descriptions of their origins and powers. Barlow's Guide was a revelation. Published in 1979 with text help by Ian Summers and reprinted in 1987 with a foreword by Robert Silverberg, it's a time capsule for what science fiction was for several decades before we really knew what technology was going to become. At the time of Discovery, the only one I'd read or even really heard of was A Wrinkle in Time by Madeleine L'Engle. Reminder to anyone who's seen the movie that they should read the book, since Aunt Beast is completely cut out of the 2018 version. Nevertheless, I read the guide from front to back, trying not to look ahead and spoil any interesting creatures. It's alphabetical, starting with the Abjormanite from Hal Clement's Cycle of Fire, and ending with the Valancian from E. E. Doc Smith's Children of the Lens. There are many more famous creatures like the Guild Steersman from Frank Herbert's Dune series, the Old One from H. P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, the Overlords from Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, the Puppeteer from Larry Niven's Ringworld, The planet from Stanislaw Lem's Solaris, and the shapeshifting alien from John W. Campbell's Who Goes There that inspired John Carpenter's The Thing. Over the years, I've learned more about these masterworks and collected quite a few of the ones listed in the guide. My favorite aliens even prompted me to seek out stories that have become favorite books I adore the Sector General novels, Up the Walls of the World, The Voyage of the Space Beagle, which I covered in Season 1, Episode 6, and The Age of the Pussyfoot, which I covered in Season 1, Episode 9. And there are others on my list like Conscience Interplanetary, Midnight at the Well of Souls, A Plague of Demons, The Tripod series, and Strange Relations. Barlow's Guide really was a gateway into becoming familiar with so many authors whose work I now admire some of my favorite creatures in the guide are the Polarian and the Slash, and at some point I noticed that they were from the same novel. Due to my lack of familiarity with the works in the guide, and my assumption as a young teenager that I wouldn't recognize the names anyway due to my lack of experience, I thought every single alien was from a different book and author. The truth is that Barlow, who you can follow at Wayne Barlow underscore the is drew quite a few aliens that appeared in the same book, or were created by the same author. For example, both the Ixtil and the Rim from The Voyage of the Space Beagle* appear here, I suspect because the coral from the same story has been drawn many more times, and Barlow was trying to illustrate lesser-known aliens, or at least ones that are less frequently drawn with super close attention to the author's original description. His depiction of the Ixtil from A Wrinkle in Time is a great instance of this. Barlow's being the only one I've seen that really captures how creepy yet beautiful these creatures are in the story. The only other version of Aunt Beast I've seen that tries to capture her unsettling appearance is a clip from a 2018 stage show uh, put on by the Great Escape Stage Company in Michigan. Side note here that there are some really fascinating stage productions of this story with fantastic sets and alien costumes. I'd never thought to Google it before. Uh, Barlow also drew multiple Jack L. Chalker creatures, multiple Larry Nivens, multiple Frank Herberts. You get the idea, but not so many that it feels exclusive. There are 50 illustrations in the book, along with sketchbook drawings. (sighs) Why am I going on about this again? Well, the hilarious thing about having Barlow's Guide on my shelf is that there are some aliens who I've become so familiar with, yet I can go years without realizing I already own their original novel. I only pull out the guide occasionally these days, and I don't have a strict goal of getting all the books mentioned in it as fast as possible. I stumble across them, I buy them if I can, and I read them eventually. The Sector General novels are an exception, I sought those out like a (laughs) madwoman. I'm a very visual collector. I like books with pretty covers. I often buy them without lingering a long time on the name or author, so long as the back cover descriptions sound somewhat interesting. Like with James Blish's A Case of Conscience. Just the other day, The Sci-Fi Shed posted a review and partway through I realized it sounded a lot like something from the guide. It was Barlow Drew the Lithian. And the author's name reminded me that I actually had a copy on my shelf! (laughs) Keeping all that in mind, when I bought Pierce Anthony's Cluster series, I did so mostly because of how much I loved the covers by Ron Walotsky. Seriously, if I could have the Cluster covers as wallpaper, I would. Something I love about old sci-fi books is that they can contain incredibly strange, beautiful alien creatures and worlds, yet the covers don't always make that clear. Yes, they sometimes do, or at least communicate what a ride the reader is in for, but I've been surprised many times. On the other hand, some of these books have an alien front and center on the cover. And in a few cases, the aliens are present, but slightly hidden. In the case of today's book, Pierce Anthony's Cluster, there's so much to unpack that it took a long time for me to piece together that I already owned the book from which the Polarian and Slash from Barlow's Guide originated. The front cover of Cluster is distinctly medieval. A semi-futuristic version of a grand castle city is in the background, while in the foreground a green-skinned man is riding a chariot drawn by a winged dragon. There is also a sunset, a river, a stone bridge, an Elizabethan queen with blue skin, On the back cover, there is another, more futuristic city and a setting sun, as well as various mysterious cloaked figures, a few items I can't quite describe, and a triceratops dinosaur, of all things. It's a lot. I dare say it's a cluster bomb of stuff going on. And all five books in the series are like that. They go Cluster, Chaining the Lady, Kirlian Quest, Thousand Star, and Viscous Circle. Let's get some background. I haven't read many Pierce Anthony books, but there are a lot of them. He was actually born Pierce Anthony Dillingham Jacob, though he wrote using just his first two names. His Wikipedia page is actually pretty interesting, but I won't just sit here reading it to you. He is currently 89 years old. The biggest controversy surrounding Anthony is whether or not his work is misogynistic towards his female characters. But Anthony defended himself in interviews with Slashdot and Moongadget, saying that these criticisms usually come from people who haven't truly contemplated what the work means, and that he gets more female than male-male fan mail letters. And this is a point I'd like to come back to after we summarize today's book, because it's something I've also thought about, being a woman myself. However, I will say that Anthony clearly respects women enough to try and understand them in all of his books, and actually relied on his first wife's income for a while when he was first getting started as a writer. That doesn't automatically make him a paragon of male feminism, but I thought it was worth noting. He's also written many, many books that are meant to be very funny, exaggerated, or tongue-in-cheek. And that sense of humor bordering on parody can sometimes be misunderstood. Oof, I think I've talked enough without saying anything of much substance. So, let's get started. Welcome to Season 2. This is Pierce Anthony's Cluster. Prologue The ministers of the Imperial Earth Council have a guest. It is a person who claims to be an alien creature occupying a human body. The ministers are in charge of a far reaching space empire known as Sphere Soul that has grown out from their original planet Earth, so it's not surprising to encounter alien life or to have one possess a body. And this is no ordinary body, but one purposefully kept alive and empty in case the Kirlian theory turns out to be true, which it did. The presence in the body has a Kirlian imprint of 80 times human normal, so the ministers are inclined to believe what the alien says and welcome it. This is not the first time a visit like this has been paid to Sphere Soul, Other advanced spheres of influence have made contact. Polaris, Nath, Canopus, Spica, Sador. Humans traded nuclear fusion for the matter transmission technology of Antares. Each contact expanded human understanding of the galaxy, as well as their capabilities as an empire. And there were probably many more attempts made before that. So this alien's arrival is very exciting. The alien explains that they are named Nodal, from Sphere Nif and this is their first direct contact with Sol, which is quite far away. NIF is from farther inside the galaxy where old, powerful spheres are located, far greater than humans in all areas. Sphere Soul is a backwater village in comparison, having only reached a decent size in the last hundred years. Unfortunately, the news brought by the alien is not good. The Milky Way galaxy is at risk, So much so that this envoy from Spear Niff is simply going to give them the secret to identity pattern transfer. Despite knowing about it and who is suitable to try it, humans have never figured out how to send someone's consciousness into another body across the stars, faster and cheaper than teleportation or transport. But at what price will this information be given? The envoy explains that there is no price but all spheres must unite as a galactic coalition against a common threat to the Milky Way. Though the ministers expect a Trojan horse, the alien envoy insists this is the truth, despite his condescending nature while speaking to beings less advanced than his own society.
1: Such cynicism is a survival trait,
0: Nodal replies.
1: We are pleased to find it in you.
0: I shall satisfy you on three scores, the practical, the technological, and the intellectual. First, Why not Sador, or Mintaka, or any of the other larger spheres of this galactic segment? Because, though well-established, these spheres are decadent, their controlling species no longer possess the initiative to tackle a problem of galactic scope, and your other neighbors have not had the foresight to arrange for transfer hosts, as you have. We have therefore contacted the most capable sphere in this region, Sol. Technologically, I shall simply confer with your scientists immediately following this meeting, and will convey to them the details of the transfer mechanism. After all, if you do not achieve this capability in short order, I shall lose my own identity. I shall be the first transfer you make, since I cannot otherwise return to my sphere. To understand the need for cooperation, you must understand the nature of transfer itself. Transfer is a modification of matter transmission, but such an unlikely aspect that only one species in a thousand discovers it independently.
1: Transfer operates at a thousand times the distance, at a thousandth of the cost in energy. This is because so much less actually has to be transmitted. Only the Kirlian ambiance moves, the body is left behind. It is my Kirlian force alone that animates this body, and it will quickly fade if I do not return to my own body, which is quite alien in comparison. Thus transfer is by no means a substitute for matter transmission, or even for physical travel through space. It is merely our most economical means of communication over galactic distances. And though it is a million times as efficient as matter transmission, it can still be costly in energy.
0: This logic makes sense. Matter mission is extremely expensive, costing a million dollars to transmit a hundred pounds just one light year. Though spheres like Sador are exponentially larger, Sphere Soul is still nearly 300 light-years across, and most matter mission is still to send message capsules. To be able to send minds across the stars would expand humanity's knowledge, which is even more valuable than energy or money. The envoy explains that another galaxy with an energy shortage has set its gaze on the Milky Way as a power source. Atomic interactions, the force of gravity, the very framework of the spiral arms could fall apart. Having discovered some technology of the ancients, older than any known sphere, they are siphoning energy through power transfer stations, which had been thought to be impossible. In order to combat the growing threat from the Andromeda Galaxy, Sphere Soul must contact its neighboring spheres who do not have empty transfer bodies available. The identity transfer technology is to be shared, and everyone is to patrol their regions and destroy Andromeda's stations. This is the price of this knowledge. Now the envoy must speak with human scientists so that his consciousness can be sent back to his own body. At 80 times normal, he has 80 days or less before he becomes submerged within the ambiance of the host body. Though the ministers are hesitant to agree too quickly to such an endeavor, the alien says he will still share the information, just as they must share it freely even with those who don't agree. Though frustrated, the Ministers get to work summoning the five people in Sphere Sol with the strongest Kirlian aura fields. Unfortunately, the top one lives on Outworld, the farthest colony planet from Earth, orbiting the star Edimin 108 light-years away. At first they balk at the expense, but reconsider when they find out the second best choice is a woman, for their backwater prejudices show while the alien's back is turned. They return to the top pick. Flint of Outworld, aged two-thirds of a year that lasts 30 years, or around 21. Male, single, heterosexually inclined, very intelligent. Outworld is a Stone Age world where the people can't read and run around naked with their green skin showing. So they're doubtful, but Flint's Kirlian intensity is over 200, the highest ever measured. The second best candidate, aside from being female, has an intensity of 98, which is low by comparison, and the others in the top five are even lower. The Barbarian is special and must be utilized in preventing disaster. And if he's too ignorant to know what he's getting himself into, all the better. Chapter 1 Flint of Outworld Flint is a young man, but big and strong. He spends many nights with the old shaman, who chooses to wear ragged clothing over his off-white body while the greenskins go naked. As his apprentice, Flint has learned many things from the old man, like how not to take offense unnecessarily and how to identify the many stars in the sky. The shaman has Flint tell him about them since his eyes are failing, and they use a telescope left over from the colony ship a hundred years ago to see Sol, the original human sun. While others in the tribe believe the old man is crazy, Flint listens to the shaman and finds meaning. He asks what it was like living on Sol, and the old man corrects him that it was Earth he lived on. When the shaman talks, Flint learns about Earth, about his own home of Outworld, including how a certain Wobble creates seasons similar to Earth's despite it taking 30 Earth years to orbit its sun, Edimin. And while Outworld is open and full of huge vines and dinosaurs, Earth is very crowded. Such knowledge was more interesting to Flint than hunting, and he is patient on points he sure are exaggerations. Flint asks questions, and the shaman answers them if he's in the mood. He says there's a reason for everything, but not always an understanding of what that is. For example, why is Outworld so primitive in comparison with Earth? The prevailing theory is called the Principle of Temporal Regression. Matter mission is too expensive, even for a single person, so groups of people are transported by colony ships that take hundreds of years to reach the outer reaches of the sphere. Those colonists end up regressing many, many times the number of years it takes to reach their new home, and the colonists born on board the ships emerge in a philosophical state far behind what their ancestors left on Earth. This principle applies to all spheres, which do overlap sometimes, On Outworld, there are a few aliens called Polarians that Flint's tribesmen call dinosaur turds. But he obeys the shaman and agrees to treat them as people of equal intelligence. The old man is glad not to be on a world somewhere in the middle where people live and duel like something out of Victorian England. As for the shaman, he was a freeze passenger, only half of whom survived the journey. Those ships bring volunteers to the outer planets periodically to spread out the human population every 30 years or so. It also keeps the sphere together, preventing it from becoming a random assortment of planets. Three times as many people travel on living colony ships, which is better for the initial colonization, and their children get right to surviving as soon as the doors open. The shaman misses Earth, but he also appreciates the simple life of Outworld, where the land and game can support the small population without any real progress or bureaucracy. The shaman appreciates Flint's playful nature and intelligence, and assures the young man that he is merely ignorant, not stupid, due to his homeworld.
2: You have a peculiar, special, intense vitality, the old man says. I saw real leadership potential in you, Flint, and I see it yet stronger with every question you ask. You must work, you must learn, you must not be content like the others, for one day this tribe will be yours."
0: Though Flint is not the chief son, the shaman has no doubt the young man will lead his people forward intellectually. Progress will come faster since it's already been discovered. The people of Outworld merely need to be inspired to follow the path, not to create the wheel from scratch. With the help of the shaman's books, the process will take only a few centuries, first there will be sundials and Stonehenge calendars, and then there will be computers. However, there is some confusion when the shaman speaks of ancients, and Flint confuses them with the capital A ancients from four or five million years ago, predating all spheres as people know them, and the shaman, in turn, gets himself confused while thinking about Earth's dinosaurs, which did not exist alongside prehistoric man. In the dawn light, Flint looks at the star soul through the telescope, and it is obscured by a moon or satellite somewhere, a superstitious omen that the shaman leans into. He says "Soul will change Flint's life. Although the young man protests, he privately believes his mentor, and a chill runs up his spine. Later, Flint is at work as a stonemason when he's called to help with an accident. A three-horned dinosaur nicknamed Old Snort attacked a hunting party, and three are dead, Though Flint is no longer a hunter and doesn't want to go, the chief has threatened Honeybloom, the girl he loves, and so he must go. The messenger takes him through the fields of vines and flowers, but their trip is interrupted by a Polarian alien sitting on the road. Quote, it was a teardrop-shaped thing, with a massive spherical wheel on the bottom and a limber tentacle or trunk at the top. When that tentacle reached straight up, it would be as high as Flint, and the body's mass was similar to his. But the Polarian had no eyes, ears, nose, or other appendages. The shaman claimed they were similar to human beings because they liked similar gravity, breathed the same air, though they had no lungs, and had a similar body chemistry. Their brains were as massive and versatile as man's, and they were normally inoffensive. But they looked quite different, and such details as how they ate, reproduced, and eliminated were mysteries." Remembering his mentor's words, Flint greets the alien politely though stifles a laugh at how much it looks like a pile of dung. The Polarian glows contentedly and lowers the little ball at the tip of its tentacle to the ground, spinning it to create sound to return the greeting. She is Soapy, a Polarian female. Peace, Topsy, Flint says. Peace, Flint, she replies. Trying his best to appreciate the creature, Flint invites her to the dinosaur hunt, and she accepts. He worries she'll get in the way but she follows swiftly on her efficient ball wheel. When they come to a vine they must climb onto, Flint offers his help, and Soapy wraps her tentacle around his hands to get up with acrobatic strength. She weighs 200 pounds and is warm like a person. They hurry on. Eventually, they hear the sounds of the dinosaur's rampage, and Flint tries to run faster. In answer to his earlier help, Soapy wraps her tentacle around Flint's waist, lifts him into the air, and rushes forward at 40 miles per hour. No wonder Polarians don't have normal eyes and lungs, Flint has to shut his eyes against the wind. They arrive at the scene, and Flint realizes both of them have been able to show off their bodies' unique skills on the journey. He feels humbled and pleased by the experience, as Soapy must also. The scene is a disaster. Old Snort is circling the bodies he's already trampled, waiting for more adversaries. Thirty feet long, fifteen tons, three great horns, and powerful despite his age. Flint is still afraid to get involved, since doing so would almost certainly make him the chief's favorite in place of his newly dead son, and he's not sure he wants to lead. On top of that, the chief is a magician, second only to the shaman, and Flint has been known to be susceptible to suggestion, regardless of his physical superiority. Also, the chief was ritually sacrificed at the end of his term, not the fate Flint had in mind for himself. The chief is overcome with grief, and in no mood to be gracious towards Sophie the Polarian, misgendering her and wanting her gone. Flint smooths things over, focused on the problem at hand, and would have regretted having the alien along if not for his mentor's talk of Sphere Polaris being twice the size of Sphere Sol. How they are advanced people beyond humans. In fact, Outworld sits closer to Polaris than it does to Sol. So Flint decides to ask Sophie for aid suggesting she lead Old Snor away since she can move very fast. She glows with pleasure.
1: Is that a Falarian treat or a female one? Flint wonders.
0: The hunters gather around the Triceratops the result of convergent evolution and get the beast's attention before Soapy leads it away. She almost gets it to fall into the trap made ready for the hunt but turns away at the last second with Old Snort right behind her. She spins her tentacle ball against the ground, crying out that she can't make the jump across the pit in such a way as to get the dinosaur to fall in. Flint realizes the mistake, and they amend the plan by shouting to each other, and finally get Old Snort to go in headfirst. However, Soapy is knocked into the pit as well by a vine pulled suddenly taut. Flint quickly slides into the pit where both Old Snort and Soapy are alive, and pulls Soapy out of the way of a charge. Holding onto her slick, dry skin, he manages to dodge the dinosaur several times, but he can't get them out. So Soapy makes a high-pitched noise against the pit wall, leading Old Snort to plow forward and dig out the walls of the pit. Flint realizes she's making the dinosaur work for them, and bravely continues the process, even tapping her ball against a horn as a sort of loud taunt. But what would they do when the ramp was made and the dinosaur could follow them out? At least the dead and wounded hunters were safe now. Fortunately, the dinosaur proves too mad and stupid to notice the ramp, and the two smaller beings get out. Soapy says that her culture dictates that she now owes Flint a great debt, and he says he does too. Since it was mutual, they declare themselves debt siblings and go on their separate ways. The tribesmen aren't sure about Soapy's health, but are glad to have such a large animal for food and leather and so on. Flint, on the other hand, feels a bit sad. Old Snort was over a century old, a dinosaur they could never have defeated in his prime, and this was the end of an era. And Old Snort had usually stayed away from people, keeping a large territory that actually warded off worse creatures. Depressed, Flint goes to see Honeybloom. Red-haired and green-skinned, she is beautiful, and they enjoy themselves by the river, until Flint returns to his stonemason shop. He especially likes working with flint rock because it is good for making knives, but needs to be handled with precision. He is proud of his skill and talent that earned him his name. While working, he thinks of marrying Honeybloom, despite the shaman's assurance that he would grow tired of her company eventually, since she was not as bright as he. Just then, a uniformed person with slug pale skin comes into the shop, obviously an imperial guard who's come from the spaceport. He wants Flint to go with him, and they almost get into a scuffle, but the guard realizes he can't make a scene or risk killing the man who the regent of Earth wants to see.
1: "'You have to come, Flint,' he says. "'The capsule just arrived.' "'What does the regent want with me?' Flint demands. "'He wants to send you to Seoul. That's all I know. "'No one goes to Seoul!' Flint laughs. "'They come from there!'
0: Flint remembers this morning's omen, and he is in shock." Weak against such magic, he allows himself to be taken away to be matter-mitted.
3: Chapter 2. Mission of Ire
2: Notice. Target galaxy development.
3: Notice taken. Report.
2: Transfer logged 80 intensity. Motion 1500 parsecs from sphere NIF to underdeveloped region.
3: Potential interest? Evidently NIF is searching for assistance, unable to monitor outer galaxy alone. Futile. No advanced cultures in that segment.
2: Addendum. Number of technologically incipient cultures in vicinity. Cluster of spheres. Itemize. Canopus. Spica. Polaris. Antares. Sidar, Nath. Bellatrix. Mirzum. Mintaka.
3: Cluster of non-entities. Canopus's slave culture. Spica waterbound. Sidor, regressive decor. Mintaka interested only in music. Antares possesses transfer, but uses it only internally. Polaris represents potential threat owing to efficient circularity. This is where NIF transferred?
2: Correction. Transferred to Sphere Soul.
3: Soul, Barely technological. Small Sphere.
2: Advanced rapidly in recent period after awkward breakthrough.
3: Concurrence. Detail on Soul.
2: Abortive. Matter mission. Expansion. Depleted. Source planet almost a point of non-return followed by disciplined starship colonization 400 source planet cycles or years major colonies sirius and procyon atomic level
3: enough with nucleus of only three atomic level settlements including origin sphere represents very limited actuality and questionable potential no action required at this time continue monitoring to ascertain purpose of nif transfer if other than desperation quest power civilization Flint finds himself in
0: an awful, sterile place of artificial light. He doesn't like the pale woman who greets him, then is startled to discover that it is just a very slight, unbearded man wearing a simple imperial tunic. Flint is also expected to wear clothes to meet with the ministers and begrudgingly accepts a green tunic to match his skin. Then an actual woman comes in to tidy him up, from his hair to his toenails. He dislikes having shortened fingernails, which would be terribly feminine on Outworld. Taken into a moving capsule... Flint sees glimpses of the city outside. Buildings like straight, vertical cliffs and crowds of people under a blue, not green, sky. It takes all of the shaman's teachings to keep Flint from doing something violent in such unpleasant spaces. He feels like a caged animal. This whole place is like a prison that limits his senses. Flint is presented to the ministers, and the regent of Earth addresses him, explaining that he has a high Kirlian aura.
1: Er, uh, do you know what that is? No, Flint says.
0: "'for the shaman had not spoken of it.'
2: "'Very well,'
0: the regent says, though clearly he's not pleased.
2: "'I'll explain. "'It is a kind of field of force associated with living things, like a magnetic field. "'Do you know what that is?'
0: "'No,' Flint says, though that's not entirely true. "'The ministers murmur distastefully, and his sharp hearing carries their words to him, "'but they don't affect Flint's pride in his heritage. "'The regent gives a rambling explanation.' Semyon Kirlian was the name of one of the early researchers to photograph electrical coronal discharges, or the glow from living things that is like an electrical field. It looks like fireworks, and even a human hand is surrounded by an aura resembling the galaxy itself. Despite his dislike for these people, Flint is fascinated. Nowadays, a Kirlian aura, once essence, can be precisely measured, and it varies with individuals. Flint's happens to be very large, making him a good candidate for transfer of identity to another body. This is an incredible idea, being able to exist in another brain while retaining yourself, your memories. And Flint is intrigued by the thought of traveling across the stars. However, he wants to go home. These people are vile, as bloodthirsty as starving beetles who turn on each other along with everything else.
1: Go to the stars? In some creature's body?
0: He asks. When they confirm this, Flint turns and sprints out of the room. He shoves through several guards and jumps into a travel capsule to get out of the building. Quickly, built for survival, he figures out the control panel despite having not yet learned how to read. This gives him time to whiz around the city and think. Flint decides that his main objection to the quest shoved upon him is the idea of being in an alien body. His strong body is an important part of his identity, and any change to it is maddening. Honeybloom is his favorite tribeswoman in large part because of her strong, lovely body. Sickness, infection, and alienness are sickening to him. Flint finds a spaceport, but realizes it would take 200 years for him to fly home. Even if he survived the freezing process unscathed, everyone he knew would long be dead. And there was no use in living out his years in a colony ship. As for getting mattermitted back, there was no chance. The price of getting him here must have been trillions of dollars more than the richest person in the galaxy had. This makes Flint wonder. Why was he worth spending so much on? Surely there were other educated people who could go out in monster bodies. There must be a good reason to bother with him. Something about his Kirlian aura must be special, made him so much better than the other candidates that his lack of education could be overcome. Maybe he was the only choice, and that might be good for bargaining. Flint gives up on the capsule, pops open the top, swings onto the wire, and slides down a support pole, much to the shock of the locals who are advanced culturally but regressed physically. He walks and sees an ocean for the first time and marvels at a snail, then quickly finds the spaceport office to ask for work. He's gambling on the fact that the ministers really need him, and it has to look convincing that he's going to skip planet if they don't give him everything he wants. A man walks into the office, and Flint is amazed by the energy he feels from him. It is Nodal, the alien envoy from Sphere Nif, possessing a human body. The only other person Flint has ever met who fascinated him so much was the shaman back home, but this one is asking him to help save the galaxy from destruction. Nodal explains that his aura is 80 times normal, and that he can tell Flint's is also very high. Those with high auras can feel it in others. The rest are blind, as if they've never known love. The vitality of it, and Nodal's calm words helps Flint
1: realize that there is something
0: deeper than the layers of skin he thinks of as himself.
1: Through the Kirlian aura, we share the universe. We are the universe.
0: The two beings have something in common that goes beyond species, though Nodal acknowledges that Flint's might be the most powerful aura in the galaxy. Transferring to other spheres, as Nodal has done, is the only way he can help his sphere, his galaxy, and himself. This is the only way to find and meet others like himself, whose auras are strong enough to survive without dissipation outside their main physical body. Normal people would be washed away. Flint's 200-day limit will be crucial to saving the Milky Way. Now committed, Flint goes with the alien.
3: Chapter 3. Keel of the Ship
2: Alarm! Priority Development
3: summon council available entities linked through transfer immediate
2: council initiated participating
3: here 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 only one additional entity why do we bother proceed
2: new transfer entity object galaxy potent
3: specific data
2: scale approximately 200 intensity motion 60 parsecs mid-rim segment
3: 200 intensity surely misreading Review prior manifestations for entity.
2: Recent transfer eighty intensity, motion 1500 parsecs from known sphere NIF to object region formerly undeveloped.
3: Call 200 undeveloped? Indication. Emissary from established transfer culture, successful promoting subsidiary transfer activity. Recruited extraordinary potency, now extreme threat. Priority target initiate action promptly. Indication noted. Call for concurrence. 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 Nature of proposed action. Summon agent highest expertise matching alien entity scale. Dispatch earliest opportunity. Destination transfer. Recipient station target galaxy. Mission. Destroy 200 intensity threat entity.
2: Contraindication. No available agent scale 200.
3: Solution. Preempt top agent from lesser mission. We do have a 200 intensity agent. One. Concurrence. Stipulation. Concealment of agent mandatory. Modification of concurrence. Mission destroy 200 intensity threat only in manner concealing motive and origin. Concurrence. Sign off.
2: Power. Civilization. Civilization. Concurrence.
0: Flint's essence is transferred into the body of an alien for the first time. The unfortunate thing about identity transfers is that the receiving body needs to be empty of a soul in order to receive him. So in this case, Flint has arrived in the body of a slave named Uro, who was recently tortured until his mind broke. The sickening shock of being on a mission to find other High Kirlian people, yet ending up in a tortured soulless body, leaves Flint stunned for a while. He can look through the body's memories, but that's a process he needs to get used to, lest it destroy his own mind. Regardless, as the freshest soulless body on the planet, It had attracted Flint's aura to it, and he would have to deal with its incredibly low status. When the foreman comes over to see how he's doing, Flint Uro recognizes him and understands him through the brain he inhabits. He responds with the harshest insult he can dredge up, using language, nuances, sociology, and slang, which satisfies the foreman that he's still alive and well after his multi-day punishment. Still, such backtalk requires extra punishment, so the foreman goes to turn up the dial on the pain box tuned to Flint Uro, only to discover it was broken and left on the highest setting. No wonder poor stubborn Uro's mind broke. When the foreman comes back with a replacement box, Flint has had time to think and decides the best thing to do is simply explain the identity transfer situation. However, explaining who he is and what sphere he is from results in more punishment, since it sounds like a joke. Later, a female brings his rations and feeds him. Flint has adapted easily to this body's lived experience since the people of Sphere Canopus are humanoid like himself, though quite furry, so he can tell the girl is pretty, though it is still difficult to sift through memories enough to get interactions exactly right. He asks her name a little too directly, but she blushes and responds that she is Klee. Learning which tribe she is from, Clint finds more memories about where he is, Sphere Canopus has two primary sentient species, Masters and Slaves. They evolved on nearby planets, but the Masters had more metals, developed technologies first, and arrived on the other world as conquerors. Klee is from a planet of high-quality, yet rebellious slaves, and Flint decides that strong-minded slaves might be the best people to tell about his mission. Sphere Canopus is neighbors with Sphere Soul and is of a similar size and he has to guess where he is based on a few familiar stars in the sky that night. He also has to navigate his position socially in order to find listening ears. To start with, Flint Uro meets with Klee's barbarous boyfriend in a supervised confrontation overseen by the foreman. The wrestling match is awkward because Flint has yet to remember and understand all these humanoids' quirks, such as their different hand joints or where their skulls are cartilage. So Flint accidentally breaks the man's arm backwards. The foreman converses with a master via radio, and Flint Uro is sentenced to five days discipline for property damage since the other slave has to be put down due to being unable to work with such an injury. This is a problem because, though he has the strongest Kirlian aura in the galaxy, Flint only has a limited amount of time to deliver his message, convey the identity transfer technology, and get sent back to his body. Even if he had months in which to accomplish this, surely any kind of punishment would deplete his aura more than he'd like. So, Flint kicks the pain box away and takes the foreman's armband radio, yelling his alien name, Uro, into it so the master on the other end knows who they're looking for. He includes a number of insults punishable by death. The woman Plee is the only other slave who flees with Flint, though the intelligent foreman makes a show of bumbling about that clues Flint into him being more or less on their side. It was possible the foreman had actually believed him about not being the real Uro and wanted to ensure he worked with the slaves to free them. A master's open-top flying saucer is already flying overhead in search of Flint and Klee, armed with pain beams. More and more, Flint's not sure he wants to talk to these masters about identity transfer technology. He doesn't even know what they look like. He and Klee run or throw things, but get caught in the torturous beams several times. Flint manages to jump up and grab onto the saucer, and the pilot flies off with him hanging on. They struggle, for Flint does not have a slave's aversion to touching one of the overlords, and he's surprised that the master is light as a feather. It is an insect person with mandibles and faceted eyes, only its voice is beautiful and melodious. The master is unshaken by the fight and realizes that Flint is not an ordinary slave. Now Flint is unsure how to go about his mission, not wanting to work with slave masters, and knocks the pilot in the head, killing the lightweight being. He then flies the saucer to where Klee is running away, and they go to where the Free Slaves live. Flint then works to explain where he came from and what his mission is. Unfortunately, the Free Slaves are a ragtag group incapable of swiftly taking over a planet, a whole sphere, in order to overthrow the masters and set themselves up in time to learn the identity transfer technology and send Flint home. These people are slaves without masters, not a fully realized civilization, though Klee does have some fight in her. And more unfortunately, one of the slaves with some leadership ability doesn't believe them, certain that they are spies for the masters. He begins sadistically torturing Klee with a pain box until she dies in agony. Suddenly, the air is full of flying saucers that round up the slaves and capture Flint. He is taken to be interrogated, and the masters make it clear that they know what he claims to be. If he were a slave, they would treat him like one, but they will treat him as a guest from another sphere and forgive him for killing one of their people. This perplexes Flint. The masters also forgive him for preferring the slaves' company since they are humanoid, as the inhabitants of Sphere Soul are. They explain that the slaves were actually a very disorganized bunch before the current system was set up, breeding their planet to death and living violently while burning up the fuels that would have gotten them to space the insectoid masters brought a form of control and moderation that saved the slave race from extinction, keeping them like healthy cattle. The masters also know about the possibility of identity transfer, and have deduced what happened to Uro that left a vacancy for Flint's mind. However, Flint made a mistake by trying to inform the nearest person of his mission. Searching through his memory, he discovers that any slave can ask to have an audience with a master, and get it within an hour, even during punishment. So... Flint realizes his mistake in being too focused on what seemed like justice and formally introduces himself to the insectoid rulers of Sphere Canopus. Much to his dismay, the Masters do not desire transfer technology. Their system would fall apart if it became possible for a slave to inhabit a Master's body, and they don't want any interference from other spheres. And even if the galaxy is at risk, the Masters will die with their slaves, come what may.
1: These are an unyielding people. Well, I certainly can't force you, Flint says. I'd better go home. Excellent, the Master replies.
3: We shall construct a transfer unit to send you back, then destroy it. I think your government will
0: understand. Soon enough, Flint communicates the memorized formulas to the scientists, impressing them with his Kirlian aura's strength. It takes a while to get right since the Master's matter emitter technology is different from back home usually hopping along in intervals in a way that prevents so much fringe regression, but doesn't send anything very far in one jump. He's stuck in Sphere Canopus until someone can figure it out, or another visitor's identity transfers in. Either way, Flint might be here for decades, and his identity will fade before that. He doesn't much appreciate that the masters welcome him in the plantations, should he lose his mind completely. Even in a master's body, he would be a prisoner away from himself. Flint decides to visit Klee, who is not completely dead, but her mind is gone due to torture. He also learns that she was a double agent, working for the Masters to find groups of free slaves who made trouble for the field workers. Feeling terrible for the loss of this pretty, spirited woman, Flint touches her arm, and immediately feels a powerful Kylian aura as strong as his own. Before he can act, Klee sits up and puts her arms around his neck. However, this is not a hug. She is choking him. Flint frees himself, then has to make the slave guard understand that he is not harming a dead body, but fighting off a living one. For a moment he is immobilized by a pain box, as well as Klee's fingers digging into his throat after she threw him on the floor using an expert combat technique. The guard realizes what is happening and helps knock her unconscious. The masters examine Klee, determining that this Kirlian aura indicates another transfer like Flint. She says she's another agent from Sphere Soul and did not understand who Flint was at first and lashed out to protect herself. Although Clint feels naive for thinking he was the only one sent, he is glad to know that she has more knowledge of transfer tech than he does and can help them both get home. Once she is led away, the Masters tell Flint that they are actually suspicious of her. Something about her aura suggests she is an entirely different species than Flint. Since Flint was told he has the highest strength of aura in Sphere Soul, it seems she must be alien. They come up with a plan to find out for sure, scheduling her transfer to Soul one day later than Flint's. The best thing to come out of these surprise circumstances is that the Masters decide to join the Coalition of Spheres on lookout against extra-galactic threats, for they are as ignorant as slaves in that regard. They cannot ignore two visitors and must prepare for an unwelcome third so they will control the movements in and out to maintain their isolation as much as they can. Not sure he's cut out for this, since it all happened by accident. Flint is sent home. Chapter 4. Lake of Dreams
2: Notice. Initial mission. Destroy 200 Intensity Threat Entity failed. Detail? Own Agent 200 Intensity dispatched contact made owing to suspicions of natives of Canopus, unable to eliminate soul transferee. Necessary to provide transfer information to Sphere Canopus in order to... What? To protect identity of Agent Origin and allay suspicion per directive. Judgment call on part of Operative. We intercepted Agent at time of retransfer from Canopus.
3: Judgment call. More likely Operative stunned by a lure of equivalent aura and lost imperative for mission. What sex, Agent? Female. Precisely. And target entity male. Route her through spot reorientation to ensure next time duty before pleasure, and reassign for next available intercept. Unfortunate we have to work through these High types. Never can be quite certain of their loyalties. Power. Civilization.
0: Flint has made a run for it. He's already made it to Luna, Earth's moon, and crossed the dusty surface to reach the plain of Lacus Somniorum, the Lake of Dreams. There aren't many people on Luna these days, since mining operations have mostly moved to other planets, so Flint won't get caught for a while. His plan is to camp out, then catch a ride that will eventually take him home to Outworld and his dear Honeybloom. He's not cut out for envoy work. On his 15-hour hopper ride across the plain, Flint thinks about what the shaman told him about humanity's history, how Earth was nearly overrun and settlers moved to the moon. Flint himself had come here in a ship using centrifugal force to create gravity, and had become very motion-sick in the process. His time on Earth had been spent in cram lessons relying on his eidetic memory to stuff his primitive brain full of modern knowledge. The ministers also provided him with reading and combat lessons, and he used these to escape those who thought him stupid as well as naive. Flint's hopper battery dies, and he's left to walk 50 miles to his destination, He progresses through the Lake of Dreams and the Sea of Cold and begins to worry that his air supply won't last like the Hopper didn't. Eventually, Flint falls and stays down, panting in stale air, thinking that maybe the Ministers weren't so bad for simply doing their jobs. His mind drifts back to that female with the high Curlean aura he'd met in Sphere Canopus, the only person he'd ever met who really felt the same as him. Finally, Flint decides he's not quite ready to die. He turns on his suit radio and says,
1: Okay, vacation's over. Come and get me. Chapter
2: 5. Year of Wheat. Notice, Kirlian transfers Sphere Soul to Sphere Spica. 200 intensity.
3: That's what we've been waiting for. Redispatch agent. Power. Civilization. Flint transfers
0: into a fish-like body this time, on a water planet within Sphere Spica. This body's name is Bopec. It is a balloon-shaped creature with flipper arms and legs and a nebulous quality that makes it almost one with the ocean. Having never seen an ocean before coming to Earth, Flint has been trained in scuba diving and tries to think of himself as a person in a suit to get used to this new feeling. Water passes through his gills. Like in Sphere Canopus, Flint has transferred into a newly vacated body, one that has just gone through physical trauma that ruined Bopex's mind. Like Canopus, Spica doesn't seem to have any empty transfer bodies set aside for this kind of scenario, so Flint was simply aimed at the area and he went into the first suitable body available. He would have bounced back into himself, were there none. Sifting through his new memory as the surrounding Spicans tell him to swim after the accident that resulted in Bopex's mind death, Flint understands that there are three types of people here. Impacts, undulants, and sibilants. Bopec was an impact courier who was taking an undulant client through one zone into another, since the three species always remain separate. Two of the three can inhabit the same space, but all three together set off alarm bells in Flint slash mind. The accident that put Flint here also affected the undulant that Bopec had been escorting, having passed through a dangerous construction area by mistake. Now aware that another person suffered. Flint Bopec swims back to where he started to find out what happened to the beautiful undulant he had nearly died with. She was named Liana and had suffered the same fate. While an impact like Bopec was quite bulbous and shaped a bit like a sea turtle, undulants like Liana were long and sinuous in the way of snakes, though thin and vertical in the way of classic fish. Flint laughs at himself internally for admiring how pretty Liana was despite not too long ago being disgusted by non-human creatures. Flint Bopec is directed to the infirmary, a floating building held to the ocean floor with a symbolic three-strand braid. He gets some pain treatment and is better able to appreciate the beautiful underwater scenery. There are many bioluminescent creatures to light the water, brilliant sea flowers, and other three-sexed creatures of the deep. He enjoys cruising around, eventually coming across an undulant and a sibilant working together. The sibilant doesn't have the same appendages as the other two, instead propelling itself with water jets from its body tube, making a sort of hissing sound. A thrill goes through him at the thought of going close and creating a trio. An instinct takes over. Flint Bopeck collides with them, and his impact body begins to overlap and fuse with the undulant and sibilant. It's an orgasmic experience. This is beyond any metaphor he could use to equate his lived life experience as a human man genuinely alien. All at once, Flint's human mind is thrown into turmoil, feeling violated by this alien act he did not ask for, and gets worse with comprehension. With a Herculean effort, he rips the trio apart, damaging all three of their bodies in the process, and swims away. Attention, I would like to read what Flint's character reflects on in this moment. This is your trigger warning for sexual violence though the act itself is not described, as well as unaliving oneself. Thanks. Quote, Flint, feeling only relief at being free, paddled rapidly away from the carnage. He didn't care what happened to the others. He had to shield himself from the disgust of the experience. Yet he couldn't. The act had been fundamentally shocking. But after the fact came comprehension, and that was even worse suddenly he understood the plight of a girl on Outworld who had been hurt and terrified by being raped but then came to realize that she carried her attacker's baby and would have to bear it and raise it forever after a reminder of the experience illegitimacy was a cardinal social offense on Outworld flint like other men had shrugged and said too bad and not given the girl's plight much further thought and of course had been careful neither to help her nor support her in any way "'The rapist had been from another tribe, and had later been killed by a dinosaur, so that ended the matter. "'Then the girl had killed herself, to Flint's amazement. "'He had volunteered for the brutal detail—really, the shaman had made him do it— "'of carrying her body out to the place of exposure and leaving it there for the vulture dactyls "'and other predators who would do the job of cleaning the flesh from the bones. "'He had gazed at her nude body—still quite pretty— since she was young and the pregnancy was not far advanced, and marveled that she should have been so foolish as to sacrifice her life when fate had already revenged her. Several days later, he had come to collect the bones for burial under her sleeping place, so that her spirit would be at rest. Even her bones had been shapely and very nice in their pure whiteness, except for a couple that had been cracked open by some larger predator for their marrow. He had tied those together so that her ghost would not be crippled, and he had interred the hole in a curled-up position under her lean-to. Everything had been done according to form, yet she had not rested. For months thereafter, her lean-to had been haunted by her restless spirit, and finally the village had had to relocate. It had been a nuisance. Flint had shaken his head at the foolishness of girls. The shaman had declined to explain it, though he had seemed sad. And now, faced with the growing realization of what he had just participated in, Flint understood why the tribe's girl had acted as she did. Actually, the star Spica, a double star, as befitted Flint's notion of fitness, his home star Edamon being similar, was part of the constellation Virgo, as seen from Earth. There were many legends about this maiden, said by some to be the original harvest goddess, but since Flint's tribe had not advanced to the level of agriculture, being Paleolithic rather than Neolithic, he identified more with the constellation's identity as Aragon, the early born. Aragon's father was Icarius, and when he died she hanged herself in grief, another curious feminine reaction that Flint suddenly appreciated. Tribesmen seldom lived to the age of 40 on Outworld. If they lived long enough to see their children safely married, there was little cause for grief when they died. Their job, after all, was done. Flint's own parents had died before he was ten Solarian years, and that had been unfortunate, but the shaman had taken him over and given him a better life than he had had before. Certainly no cause for suicide. But now he saw that for those who felt really strongly about another person or thing, the loss of such a value could evoke a reaction as strong as to require death. The maiden Aragon, patroness of the wheat field, had gone to heaven with an ear of wheat in her hand, and that ear of wheat was the star Spica, Perhaps the story of the death of her father was a euphemism. Actually, she might have been raped, and here was the evidence in the form of a planet of rape. But how much worse for a man? A pretty girl was made to be impregnated by one means or another, but any such suggestion for a man was an abomination. He tried to put the horrendous concept out of his mind. He did not want to comprehend it. He tried to shove this debased body away from him, as he would the gore of a slain animal's ruptured intestine, knowing it was impossible, yet still making the effort, just as the pregnant girl must have tried to shove out her hateful baby. Unquote. His whole being struggles against the notion of being impregnated in any form, as a three-sexed system might force him to be.
2: Orientation affected.
0: Dispatch agent. This time she'd better perform. His thoughts are interrupted by strange voices in his head, picked up by some combination of sense organs and environments that are still new to Flint. They help clear his mind so he can look through Bopec's memories to better understand how Speakins work, how children are born through a trio system, a catalyst, a sire, and a parent. Any of the three sexes could play any role, though the catalyst determined the offspring's sex. To young Bopek in sex ed class, it had been exciting to imagine the three touching. Power. Civilization. Concurrence.
1: Get out of my
0: mind! Clint cries, fleeing to the impact zone and getting a hold of himself. He's able to calm down and think academically, realizing that in his tumultuous state, his aura had reached out and caught some alien communication. His revulsion was merely an emotional reaction to something natural and necessary and he needs to focus on the fact that he has been lucky enough to be clued into the arrival of the same High curlean agent from before, and he knows what body she will likely be in. Other than that, there are too many variables, and Flint can't help but be interested in this fellow High curlean soul who previously inhabited such a pretty female body in Sphere Canopus. Before he can decide what to do, though he's sure he cannot kill her, Flint Bopak is found by the authorities due to violating the zones and initiating non-consensual mergence that resulted in a child. However, Flint is not in the mood to go through the criminal justice system and does the only thing he can think of to escape, overlaps the other two impacts as if they were a trio. It's a culturally reprehensible move akin to homosexual intercourse that nearly overwhelms Flint through his body's memories, but it knocks the authorities out cold. Hating himself, Flint swims away. Flint Bopeck finds the lovely undulant named Liana, who is swimming again, as Flint expected. She follows him without hesitation, and it becomes clear they recognize each other's powerful auras.
1: "'So you know me already,' she says cautiously. "'You are aware of my mission.'
0: As they swim, Flint tells her a story. She probably thinks he's a fool, for she will no doubt try to kill him again soon. But he has her distracted." he rambles about the ear of wheat that is held by the maiden in the constellation they are now in and explains that on earth wheat plants reproduce with pistols and stamens but need a third element to be successful wind though sexless the wind is necessary Flint then explains the speak in sexes how one is the catalyst while the other two the sire and the parent actually create the offspring impacts, undulance, and sibilants are interchangeable in these roles the catalyst experienced it the sire gave up a portion of their flesh, and the parent was in charge of raising their creation. Just as he finishes explaining, the two enter the Sibilant zone and encounter the third sex. The Sibilant swims at them uncontrollable, and Flint prepares himself for violating yet another two people's rights in order to avoid killing this Hyculean female. The trio merge, with the catalyst Sibilant being more or less happy for the excuse to be involved guilt-free since Bopec and Liana invaded its zone. Liana is horrified as she realizes what is happening, and Flint allows himself to enjoy the Triple Union, enhanced by his and Liana's powerful auras.
1: I am not of your kind,
0: she shouts at Flint.
1: This is an abomination.
0: This confirms Flint's suspicion that this Kirlian entity is not human, but alien. He delves deeper, using their joined nervous systems to figure out where she is from, though it's hard to focus when he is experiencing pleasure that will forever ruin his ability to love Honeybloom, whose aura is about normal level. And Liana proves to be smart, realizing that by throwing herself completely into the mating, she can conceal her origin. The climax comes, the three are expelled outward, and they part quickly. Weakened by the construction accident, both missing flesh that went into mating, Flint and Liana have to get out of the sibilant zone or risk seriously injuring themselves through another involuntary encounter. Liana is accompanied by a small, genderless baby underlint. As they swim, Liana is angry, but admits that she will prioritize the child for a while rather than chase after Flint. And neither can deny how powerful their attraction is to each other due to their auras. They aren't likely to ever meet someone on their level again, though she admits that she must kill him next time. They agree that Liana is capable of staying in this body for about six months until the infant is weaned. Flint takes pleasure in their conversation, furious though Liana is. He admires her intelligence and adaptability, despite having underestimated him as a primitive, and is pleased with himself for outmaneuvering her. They make a deal that she will accept the child without pressing charges for the involuntary merchants, and he won't reveal her alien identity to the authorities. So they part. Liana returning to the undulant zone, and Flint going before the ruling Council of Impacts. The Speakin people are intelligent and have done remarkable work in space despite their water-based lifestyle, and he'll be home in no time. His only regret is that the mysterious female assassin is his ideal mate, yet he cannot marry a non-human entity, nor can either of them remain outside their bodies without losing their very essence after a while. He needs to keep Honeybloom in his mind. Chapter 6,
3: Eye of the Charioteer.
2: Notice, Agent Mired and Sphere Speaker cannot remove for some time.
3: We know! What of the target Kirlian?
2: Retransfer to Sphere Soul. No subsequent transfer.
3: Well, check the matter mission indications, idiot.
2: Target Kirlian matter mitted to System Capella within Own Sphere.
3: Detail on System. Renaissance Culture,
2: Despotic... Center of internal resistance to domination of Earth planet. Some infiltration by agents of anti-coalition spheres, dominated by scheming queen.
3: Excellent. That system may take care of our problem for us. Power. Civilization. Flint is on vacation in order to recover his aura.
0: The ministers wouldn't let him go back to Outworld in case he ran off, but he's in the Capella solar system to get away from Earth. Here, there is less regression than on Outworld, and Queen Bess rules a planet that is slightly Renaissance, slightly Victorian. Having gotten used to clothes, Flint puts on the appropriate costume of tights, codpiece, armor, and a fancy pocket watch. He is warned not to get into any duels, and to stay out of the way while notables try to become the Queen's new lover, since this is a generally xenophobic world that thinks of Earthlings as aliens, though someone from a primitive world like Flint will be respected well enough. The Imperial Ambassador, manning the teleporter, gives him a radio to place in the roof of his mouth so they can stay in contact, just in case this somewhat violent world does become dangerous. Flint's transportation to the castle is a real dragon pulling a chariot. The beast reminds him of dinosaurs like Old Snort, and he gains its trust through force of will. The Ambassador tests out the two-way radio while Flint rides away with reins in hand, making sure they can hear each other. Privately, Flint wonders if the Queen is testing him by sending an unmanned dragon to pick him up, for an ordinary man might well have been killed rattling down the bumpy road. The castle is a mismatch of medieval architecture, and Flint makes a grand entrance in the chariot behind his speeding steed. His enjoyment makes him realize that perhaps his skills as a hunter and a flintsmith on Outworld were due to his high Kirlian aura interacting with other powerful forces in animal and stone. Everyone on this planet has blue skin, unlike the pale people Flint met on Earth or the green people of Outworld, all experiencing different solar radiation. He is escorted into the party towards the throne room by a woman named Del, and finds out that the dragon sent to fetch him is a dangerous beast called Old Scorch, the queen's own pet. He also finds out that the funny shapes of the women are due to bustles under their skirts, and Del even lifts hers to show off her legs. The ambassador whispering over the radio warns Flint that this is another test, like the dragon. He can't spend time with a handmaiden when there's a possibility the queen might be interested in him. Besides, Flint prefers to be the seducer himself. In the throne room, Flint and other diplomats are introduced with overblown titles. His own being, the regent of the fabled green planet, scion of Star Etaman, conqueror of the dragon, Flint of Outworld. He then goes to see the blue-skinned queen in all her royal finery, thick makeup, and hoop skirts done in the style of Elizabeth of Old England. She approves of him well enough, and Flint begins to enjoy the party after a young noble tries to make a fool of him and fails because Flint is cleverer. Each time the noble picks a fight, Flint deflects with humor that gets the whole hall laughing. It gets to the point where Queen Bess comes over to see what the trouble is
1: and Flint can't help but be honest that he was annoyed. Even the dragon can at last become annoyed at the yapping of curs. The two insulted nobles draw their swords,
0: and Flint quickly knocks them down with karate techniques he learned on earth, never once drawing his own sword. He then bows and apologizes to the queen. When she asks him how they should be punished, Flint offers up some classic barbarian death rituals that shock the room. Queen Best then requests his sword, has him kneel, and nights him, at which point Flint realizes she has an attractively high Kirlian aura. She then whispers an invitation to her bedroom after the party, and Flint swallows the two-way radio to get some privacy. Flint proceeds to enjoy several weeks on the planet in the Queen's company. CHAPTER 7 TALE OF THE
3: SMALL BEAR
2: notice subject kirlian transfer to sphere polaris agent remains unavailable
3: polaris is the most advanced sphere of that region ready another agent necessary to eliminate subject immediately
2: caution local factors make infiltration difficult for any but high kirlian experienced agent
3: what factors
2: polarian philosophy of circularity presence of cult of terrorism debt system excellent intelligence network
3: Won't those same factors inhibit mission of subject entity? True. Power. What? Sign off, idiot. Power. As in, what we need for...
2: Oh, sorry.
3: Civilization. What a mess. Report. Spherical Reconnaissance. Two. His ultimate circularity. Pole Prime. Oh, biggest of wheels, my little report. As thou didst direct, I placed myself in the way of he whom our neighbor's fear sought. He of the extraordinarily intense Kirlian aura, the Solarian flintsmith. I intercepted him as he traveled to the hunting party of his chief, he of the powerful stick. Solarians, O illustrious spinner, do not employ the wheel at this fringe of their sphere, and tend to think in terms of the stiff, hinged rods by which they ambulate. Hence, powerful stick, or strong spear, translate loosely into big wheel. No offense to thee. We held converse, and the alien flintsmith, worker of stone, was obliged to invite me to accompany him on his round, and I accepted. In the course of our journey, we exchanged minor favors, and I had occasion to make physical contact with him, and so verified that he does indeed possess the strongest Kirlian ambience I have ever touched. A hundred, perhaps two hundred times as dense as my own ordinary one. The report we intercepted from the Solarian government was accurate. It may well be the single finest Kirlian aura in our galaxy. "'Having ascertained that, O oh Honoured Cog, I could not conveniently disengage, "'for we were now amidst the Solarian's primitive hunt. "'There was danger to the flintsmith, "'and because we maintain amicable relations with these stick figures, "'I felt constrained to protect him somewhat. "'Though his body is grotesque in the fashion of his kind, "'there may never be his Kirlian-like again within our range of the myriad moat galaxy. "'In fact, taking no presumption to suggest to advise so massive a revolver as your wheelship. I would be inclined to spin into the tightest cultural and economic affinity with the Solarian sphere, in the interests of exploring this remarkable Kyrlean manifestation. Perhaps when our breakthrough into the secret of transfer occurs, apology, my association with Solarians has affected my vocabulary. I mean, when our revolution of transfer occurs, we can discover how to engender similar auras in our own kind, where at present our highest intensity is about 50. I was able to preserve the flintsmith's life from extinction by the animal they hunted, Ancient noseblow. Solarians of most species, sapient and sentient, possess separate respiratory apparatus capable of producing sounds, particularly in the presence of infection. Thus the creature frequently honked or snorted, hence its name, variously rendered as Aged Hunk or Old Snort. But thereafter, the flintsmith also preserved my own life from a similar threat, In this manner, we inadvertently exchanged life debts, and were obliged to make the compact. The first, if I mistake not, between a Polarian and a Solarian. And there have not been many between Polarians and Nathians, either. In fact, exchanges between spheres are quite rare. But of course, Sphere-Nath is our longest association. I therefore terminate my report as of the moment our mutual vow was completed, and resign from this case. In no way shall I betray the interest of my debt-brother, and should he ever manifest within our sphere, I claim debt priority with regard to him. From Small Bearing, pole Agent Soapy, Perimeter Detail.
2: Appended Circular by Big Wheel How brazenly the small bear twists her tail into wheelish matters, presuming to inform us of elementary history and even proffering advice! Yet despite her frequent irrelevancies and truncated spin, there goes one of our best field agents. Note how subtly she imposed on the Solarian in the interest of her mission, and how loyally she protects his own interest now that she has wangled debt exchange. The little disc has rolled into love with an alien stick, overwhelmed by his Curlian aura. Beauty and the Beast. She probably wanted to get into the round of records. First debt exchange between Pole and Soul. Now she even demands consummation. Well, we can gyre through this vortex too. If the solarian flintsmith ever does manifest here, fat chance, assign Soapy as his guide. A cycle or two of forced association with the alien will cure her of such looping fancies. She'll have her notoriety, and soon her wheel will be spinning normally. We'd never put up with this if she weren't such an efficient operator, and cute as a -a whirlabug too.
0: Flint awakes in his new body to great disorientation, for he has no feet to fall forward onto, nor hands to catch himself with. With the help of someone there gently talking and holding him up, he figures out how to use his new Polarian wheel to stay upright. Think circular, the person says. You know, Flint says in surprise, and discovers he speaks by instinctively rolling his smaller ball against his tough hide. The guide explains that spheres soul and Polaris are in communication, and they were alerted of his arrival. Flint takes a while to adjust, for Polarians have a sort of sense that creates a 360-degree field of understanding, like human peripheral vision. He perceives, quote, the presence of a female Polarian, shaped like a huge chocolate candy kiss, and very nicely proportioned from little ball to great wheel. He is startled to learn that this is soapy the same Polarian he met on Outworld right before he was brought to Earth. As his debt sibling, she has first rights to be his guide, and the government consented to the exceptionally expensive matter mission that got her here to meet him. Flint is glad, because this is the first time he's been able to see a creature with both his human eyes and his alien senses. Soapy is someone he respects as an old friend, as well as finds beautiful. Soapy shows Flint around, for they have a few days before he's to meet with Big Wheel. Polarian architecture is quite impressive, for these are people who learn to roll stones and squeeze glue the way humans carried rocks and hammered nails. The city is as beautiful and advanced as any on Earth, filled with convenient ramps for rolling on their great round wheels and laying down their scent for every other Polarian to recognize. It is a pleasant society of close relationships, people talking to each other by touching speech balls to hides. Everything is powered by solar satellites. Clint is anxious to convey his knowledge to the big wheel and zooms off while Soapy is mid-sentence. He's had too many close calls to risk being late this time, and he refuses to get romantically involved with Soapy. She knows too much about him. She makes him feel vulnerable. Then again, maybe she was another agent trying to keep him from fulfilling his mission. No one on Earth had told him he was expected here. Too distracted to properly sift through his host body's memories, Flint follows a monk's trail along a road in the hopes of finding somewhere safe to think. This leads him to falling down a hole, which is alarming, but turns out to be a normal way into a quiet place. If only he were doing better at looking into his host's mind. He has to find a way around that initial information block that could be so dangerous. Then again, he'd relied on it to keep one step ahead of that mysterious assassin. This is a temple of terrorism, which is startling since Flint thought tarot cards and beliefs surrounding them were of human origin. Tarotists believe all religions are legitimate, among other things. The priest there invites Flint to choose his signifier, which his Kirlian aura will dictate, and he draws the hermit, the ninth key, the bringer of light. Flint is then invited to learn more and experiences a human vision of the hermit in a gray robe and lantern. The priest wonders if Flint is the founder come to lead them but he is not. He then tells Flint's fortune. 1. His mission affects the whole galaxy in a good way. 2. He will face the queen of energy with her destructive flame. 3. His ultimate potential will possibly be fulfilled with good news from a lady. 4. His greatest danger will be secrets and fear. 5. What lies behind him were some good times. and 6. What lies before him is sorrow split four ways being unable to make an informed decision, having one's illusions destroyed to make way for a new understanding, discovering something about modern science, and metaphorical death, aka transformation, to die in one way and be reborn another. The priest cannot predict the future, only provide a fortune based on a person's potential. So Flint asks for more information about the Queen of Energy, which surely refers to the female assassin tailing him. The priest draws cards for the devil, indicating a false path, as well as others that indicate Flint cannot destroy her, only neutralize her. Then Flint wants to know about the sorrow he's going to experience, and is surprised that the Queen of Water is drawn instead, indicating a different female's involvement and her destruction. Flint is horrified, certain that his love Honeybloom is in danger back home on Outworld. They continue... Flint trying to figure out if Soapy is trustworthy, and is shocked again that her card is the page of solid and her fortune speaks of love. Assured that Soapy is not his assassin transferred, Flint rolls off to give his message to the big wheel himself. Flint encounters some trouble at the gate, not fully understanding some talk about a debt left unfilled, but Soapy quickly arrives to help him. He insists on delivering his message, and so she takes him to the big wheel, The ruler sits in a lovely garden and is surprised to see them.
2: "'Has your debt been abated so quickly?'
0: he asks, and Soapy timidly admits to yielding that debt. The big wheel is enraged. He wants the matter settled so Sphere's soul will not be angered and Soapy can get back to work as a field agent. So Soapy leads Flint away to explain. The private place she chooses turns out to be another planet. The Polarians are not only as advanced as humanity they have a cyclical social view of the world that encourages the free use of technology all they had to do was roll through a doorway and they mattermitted a distance that would have cost a fortune in sphere sol together they roll through a beautiful forest of round trees and sophie explains that the tarot religion that flint saw today came to sphere polaris from sol about 300 years ago the people here enjoy the concepts if nothing else Males and females who have reproduced are kings and queens, while those who haven't are knights and pages. Soapy herself is a solid, ground type of person tied to her world, while Flint is an off-world being of the air. In much older language, she is a coin and he is a sword, which is also how their spheres are viewed. As to why the Beagle won't hear Flint yet, Soapy explains that government and society exist to serve the individual. What is good for the individual is good for society, she says. Their culture moves forward like a great wheel, rather than thrusting forward like humans do. Since Fear Polaris is twice the size of Sol, clearly something is working for them. As for the debt people keep talking about, divergent interests must be reconciled. There can be no enemies, only debt to be expiated. Flint and Soapy saved each other's lives back on Outworld while hunting that old dinosaur, which creates a strong debt bond. To Polarians, mating and children are the primary method of debt fulfillment creating bonds of powerful love that last a while, serve society, then release the individuals. Flint is a little bit disgusted. To him, sex for the purpose of children is basically marriage, which he has promised to Honeybloom, and sex for the purpose of society and politics is prostitution. The idea of short-term love is ridiculous to him, like polygamy. Eventually, Flint comes around to the idea enough to begin the mating ritual, for Tzopi's sake. They roll around each other, leaving amorous scent trails, but soon Flint stops. He can't bring himself to do this act for political reasons. Yes, he'd had some fun with Queen Bess in a political setting, but he hadn't really benefited from it personally. Here, he would be doing it just to get it done, and get on with his mission. In the end, Flint refuses to become this alien. He will stick to his own principles when he goes before the big wheel. Soapy is devastated, but accepts that she has imposed on him. Since she says the big wheel will know immediately that the debt was not properly fulfilled if he sees them, though Flint's host memory is too layered with emotions for him to understand why, so they send a message for him instead. Flint then tells Soapy goodbye and goes for his audience with the big wheel. Before seeing him, Flint is asked to help with an unusual situation that has popped up. A human colony ship has been sailing through space for 300 years and has just arrived at a planet in Sphere Polaris. While the Polarians are happy to have them, the inhabitants must accept that they will be Polarian subjects under the rule of the Big Wheel. However, due to the process of regression, the people aboard will be little more than Stone Age people, like those on Flint's homeworld. Would he please communicate with them? Flint's image is projected onto the ship more and more, Flint admires the Polarians the same way the Shaman did back on Outworld. On the colony ship, there is a large grassy park with plants that recycle air as well as produce food, and Flint comes across a person. At first he's disgusted. Seeing a human through Polarian senses is jarring, for they are not at all round, but split symmetrically with strange appendages, right angles, and terrifying holes in their faces. It takes a moment for Flint to realize he's looking at a naked female, and even longer to figure out that she's very pretty. This makes him worry that his Kirlian aura is fading too much being in Sphere Polaris, and he's anxious to get back to Seoul. The woman's fear makes Flint realize that a human version of himself should have been projected onto the ship, and opts to end the transmission when the tribesmen begin throwing things at his image. The Polarians appreciate his straightforward attempt, and they decide they'll go back to a more circular approach, projecting a still image of a Polarian for the colonists to get used to, and sending them trinkets. Flint decides that perhaps a circular method is better in many situations, now appreciating how much Soapy liked him despite the bizarre form he was born to. Flint asks the Polarian what happens if a circular debt is not repaid, and finds out that this is a topic that fascinates and absorbs Polarian attention and literature. To simply refuse to fulfill a debt for pretty much any reason pulls the system apart. In similar situations to Flint's, the female usually dies. Realizing that he has sentenced Soapy to death by refusing their debt bond, Flint goes to the big wheel to apologize and join her. He no longer cares whether he's more human or Polarian. Soapy would have gone to the Temple of Tarot, and Flint does the same. Much to his surprise, Soapy is not dead yet. Apparently, the big wheel made her wait so he could work on Flint behind the scenes, for apparently the old one was much more clever than his original outburst made him appear. And Soapy is very pleased, for Flint's road to get to this point was wonderfully circular. The two complete the mating ritual, circling each other, entwining their trunks, and grasping onto one wheel together. Flint hadn't realized before that the wheel, the biggest bulk of his body, wasn't integral to his form. The one wheel is spun between them, sealed tight, and creates an electrochemical shift through extreme heat. Flint and Soapy fall apart at last, and the wheel rolls away, slowly unfolding into a fully formed adult Polarian and leaving to begin its own existence. Now missing her wheel, Soapy places her tail ball in its place and balances on the hilarious tiny new wheel. Flint then gives up his own ball so that she may have a voice, and gets his full-sized wheel back. While Soapy grows her ball into a proper wheel, Flint will grow a new voice ball. There are complex nuances to this interaction. Normally, the female would use the male's voice ball to grow a new wheel, which would then become the seed of a child in the next mating, activated by a different male. It wasn't so different from speak-in-three-sex mating, and explained why Polarians didn't stay together in mated pairs. One pair couldn't produce twice in a row. As is, Soapy's next mating wouldn't produce a child since she'd chosen to hold on to Flint's sacrifice as a speech ball, a token of remembrance. They are both satisfied and will no longer associate with each other. Flint will stay here until his new voice ball grows, then communicate the identity transfer data to the big wheel. Chapter 8. Letters of Blood
2: Report. Critical Period Notification of Mired Agent
3: summon all available entities council
2: council initiated
3: participating here 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 well that's one more than last time proceed
2: our 200 kirlian agent now available for retransfer provided low kirlian replacement exchanged low kirlian transfer subject would rapidly be lost explain rationale 200 Kirlian agent is our best, familiar with this mission. Low Kirlian would be expendable after exchange. Low Kirlian would lose identity, but remain suitable for a specialized mission.
3: Now I'm confused. How can...
2: Specialized mission is foster care of offspring engendered by enemy agent on ours. Our best agent mated with
1: enemy agent? She was assigned to eliminate him.
3: It is a long story. As you would have been aware had you attended prior council...
1: I was preoccupied with spherical matters.
3: This is a galactic matter of overriding import. Don't
2: lecture me. You think you're so dashed superior. Where would this galaxy be if we hadn't-
3: Please, unity is the essence of power. Maybe we should let them achieve their own galactic coalition. Then they would bicker themselves to death as we do.
1: Extreme humor noted.
3: Accept our statement that this exchange is necessary, expedient. But she will kill him next time? Assuredly. As victim of rape, she is very angry. No laser flashes hotter than that of a female wronged.
2: Spare us the aphorisms. Concurrence?
3: Sign off. Power.
2: Civilization. Concurrence.
0: Flint's return home is uncomfortable. His body is in a poor state after his prolonged absence. Having contracted some minor illness, as well as atrophied slightly... And the ministers transfer him again, so modern medicine can work on the body's recuperation. Flint requests to be sent home to Outworld in the Edamon solar system of the constellation Draco the Dragon. He will make do with whatever body he finds himself in. It turns out to be a young boy with a bad foot and a missing arm, indicative of the violent lives led on Outworld. Worse than that by far is Honey Bloom's fate. Flint discovers that she was pregnant when he was abruptly sent to Seoul and has thus been outcast as an unmarried mother. In a body much smaller and less fit than his own, Flint makes his way across the terrain with difficulty. And when he finds Honey Bloom in her distant lean-to, he's shocked by how faded and old she looks. He feels fresh guilt at having forced the female assassin into a similar situation, though the culture of Sphere speaker is different. Still, Flint is proud of Honey Bloom for persevering, for caring for her bastard child. Flint needs to put things right, though he knows Imperial Earth will never let him go, strong as his aura is in the fight against the Andromedans so he goes to Honeybloom claiming he has a message from her old love Flint he says that Flint has died with honor in a battle against a monster
1: tell my dear wife Honeybloom of Outworld that I love her and bequeath to my son my name and trade let him be a flintsmith
0: he also says that Honeybloom is entitled to Flint's pension and status all she has to do is go to the imperial office where the forms are Honeybloom weeps with grief, but this is much, much better than the pain caused by his unexplained absence. She will be taken care of from now on, and Flint accepts that this really is a sort of death for him, as he transforms from Flint of Outworld into Flint of Sphere Soul. He seeks out the old shaman who unknowingly prepared him for a life away from home. It doesn't take long for the shaman to perceive who the injured little boy really is. They discuss what has happened, and the shaman agrees to make sure Flint's money is used for Honeybloom and her son correctly.
2: You have aged,
0: the shaman observes, despite Flint's
1: young vessel. I have had to age, he replies. I have become disgustingly civilized. I travel the galaxy now, or at least our local cluster of spheres.
0: The student tells the teacher about all his adventures, and they ponder the future, as well as the identity of the Andromedan assassin. The shaman points out that this assassin is also a scorned woman, one who will fight viciously, unlike Honeybloom. It is now painfully obvious that the assassin is from the Andromeda galaxy, that she can find Flint wherever he goes. Shaman and student part as friends for the last time. Chapter 9 Daughters of the Titan
2: Notice, multiple matter missions to Hyades' open star cluster, including 200 Curlian enemy entity.
3: Hyades, that means they've found it. Send agent immediately.
2: She is only just freed from Spica. Her Curlian is down.
3: I know. Matter mit her there.
2: To another galaxy? The energy expense.
3: Call for concurrence. All available entities. Concurrence. That satisfy you? This is an emergency. Matter mit her now. <sighs> Power. Civilization. After
0: three months out of his body, Flint is tired, but the ministers have a new assignment for him. They're sending him to an ancient sphere, a remnant of beings who existed long ago and left behind creations scattered across this galaxy, as well as others. A well-preserved ancient colony has been discovered on an airless planet in the Hyades star cluster within constellation Taurus, right between spheres Sol, Polaris, Canopus, and Nath. In the hopes of finding technology or libraries there, left over from an interstellar empire with no regression at all, all four spheres are sending representatives to prevent fighting. What if there is an energy generator or something similar to thwart the Andromedan's plan? Flint could retire. Not that he really wants to, but the safety of the galaxy is what's important. Other spheres have also been notified. Flint is sent as the sole representative because he has more experience with alien races. Dressed in a close-fitting and comfortable spacesuit, he can step out of the Nathian emitter onto the surface of a planet with no atmosphere. Sphere Nath has recently been alerted to the danger of Andromeda via Sphere Polaris, and that sparked the conversation about this ancient site. The representatives will meet here. First is a Canopian insectoid master in a flying saucer fitted with a speaker that communicates in the standard language of Imperial Earth. Flint would have been disgusted by the giant insect had he not already become used to them. Though they prefer to be left alone, they have sent a level 45 or a person on this mission of galactic importance. The two fly along, discussing the mystery that is the Ancient's sudden disappearance after a million years of Prosper. The Master drops Flint off and flies to the next mattermitter. There are ancient ruins everywhere, full-sized buildings of remarkable quality. It's much easier to tell how advanced they were three million years ago than it is planetside, where forests and mountains shift and break things. First to the scene, Flint meets the other representatives. The first is from Sphyrnath, a shifting mass of a creature that moves its body along the ground by reaching out with countless tethers to grip and pull its way along. Flint and the being speak using translators that send each other words in their own languages. The alien says that Sphere Bellatrix cannot send a delegate, but they spoke to Sphere Mirzum, who will. The Milky Way coalition against Andromeda grows larger. The Nathian admits that Sphere Nath didn't reveal the existence of this ancient site previously because they believed such advanced technology might be hidden here, would be too advanced for the cultures trying to utilize it, though the Andromedan threat expedited their timeline. They have now traded the site's location for transfer technology. The Canopian Master returns with a creature from Sphere of Minaka, very large, far away, and little known. They are all surprised since they'd heard that that sphere was beginning to fail. The alien from there is long and tentacled, covered in sharp, circular blades so that it rolls along the ground like a farm harrow.
1: This is a combat creature,
0: Flint thinks. It has many red eyes along its length that flash its language. The translators interpret these lights, and the creature thanks them for the transfer technology that already helps Mentokan society. Flint wonders how bad cultural regression must be in a sphere bigger than any other known in this part of the galaxy. Flint is relieved that so far the representatives seem to stand for good things. Privacy. Trade. Peace. He is pleased to see a Polarian roll up next. Then the master brings two protoplasmic beings from sphere Antares a place that had transfer tech but had been secretive about it. However, one person is actually from Sphere Spica, a fish person who must use transfer tech to move about a little easier in a body from neighboring Antares. Flint makes note of all the diplomat's physical capabilities and speeds. The Canopian master asks the others to follow its saucer a ways off, and everyone is shocked to see a dead body with a punctured spacesuit. That's a Mirzamian, exclaims the long, sharp Mintakin. Everyone is suddenly on edge, for this was clearly murder. One of the seven creatures here is the culprit, either spy or traitor. Flint is not overly surprised, explaining that an Andromedan operative has tried to kill him before. The group tries to determine a way to identify the imposter. Flint's would-be assassin was female, and always transferred to female bodies, but the Ontarians are sexless, and the Speakans have three sexes. Then again, how can anyone prove that sort of thing to beings not familiar with alien anatomy? The Polarian has no way to prove he is male. How do they even know this is the same assassin? Many concepts are too alien to verify, anything from Polarian debt rituals to human voting. The Mintakin is particularly perturbed, since the only representative from a sphere that overlaps theirs who could verify anything they say is lying dead on the ground. Flint ends up getting nominated as the investigator, since Sphere Soul provided many spheres with transfer tech and, if he is who he says he is, Flint has been to many other spheres. His human directness seems best in this situation. His knowledge is used to test the Polarian, backed up by neighbors, then to test the Spikin. Again, the Mintakin speaks up about something Flint said, pointing out that the Androvidan spy would know just as much about Sphere Spika. The group goes around and around, and the Spikin suggests that the murderer could be some leftover titan, a remnant of the ancients, be it robot or booby trap. The group of seven separates into pairs so they can watch each other and get on with the archaeology mission, leaving the master and his saucer to stay behind as a backup. Flint and the speakin' transferee wander around the ruins together. A bit of conversation convinces Flint that the speakin' impact is what he says, uncomfortable around so many species when he comes from a segregated world. More mobile, Flint scouts ahead in difficult places, and he sees beautiful pieces of technology that paint the heavens inside buildings as they would have looked three million years ago. The pair are called back by the Canopian Master, and find out the Ontarian was killed while exploring with the Polarian, much to Flint's surprise. He and the Speakin now trust each other. To get to the group faster, Flint carries the Speakin transferee, and is impressed by its high Kirlian aura. All spheres sent their best. The group tries to figure out alibis, but have a hard time. Though Flint doubts that the Polarian would kill, the round alien was closest to the Ontarian. Flint is under fire, since he is one of the fastest among them and could return to his partner without much time passing. The Nathian and Mintakan both believe they would have noticed the other's absence, as well as a clear trail in the dust. And even the Master, who alerted them to the deaths, has a speedy flying saucer. Then again, why wouldn't the alien with the armed spaceship just kill them all right here? As a large group, they continue into the ruins, finding safety in numbers against the imposter, or whatever ancient threat they face. The Polarian shows them where he and his dead partner found an ancient airlock, also pointing out the tracks in the dirt that show no one else coming over. But the Polarian has nothing with which to puncture a spacesuit to create violent decompression, which is how each victim died. Again, there is discussion. The Polarian suddenly notices that there are only three wheel trails in and out of the space. He came in, left to call the others, came back in, and left again to inform everyone of the death. That would be four tracks, but there are only three. Whoever did this erased their dust tracks, covering one of the Polarians with it. Again, around the circle to see who could have. Again, they give up. Together they enter the ancient airlock, which still hisses with helium air stored millions of years ago. This could be the discovery of the century, no matter the risks. Quote, It was a large chamber, illuminated by a gentle glow from the walls, with several passages radiating out from it. In the center was a circular platform enclosed by a pattern of wire mesh. There seemed to be an elevator or a hoist within it. The cage suspended about twice flints height above the floor. That was all. Unquote. The in Transferee's Antarian body can sense electromagnetic flows in the place, and it's revealed that he can sense when another entity is a Transferee, confirming that he is the only one. Everyone else is in their own body. Returning their attention to the chamber, they determine that this space has something to do with Curlean energy. The place itself has an aura, the ability to control inanimate energy and transfer it must be the same ancient technology that the andromedans have been using to steal energy from the milky way everyone is nervous that if they try to activate any of the machinery whatever is trying to kill them will possess one of their number though flint is dubious why wouldn't it have done so already he does suspect the intelligent Mintaken bladed creature but can't dismiss their alibi flint and the Mintaken volunteer to activate the machine while the others stand watch they stand in the Kirlian arena, and Flint sees visions of Honeybloom when he tries to imagine something for the machine to interact with. Suddenly, another is dead. The Spica transferee's suit has been punctured. The Polarian and Nathian are horrified, saying a laser beam shot out of the arena. Before they can calm down again, the Polarian rushes Flint, pushing him out of the way as another laser fires and the bladed Mintakin emerges from the Kirlian arena to fight them. Soon, the Nathian is dead too. Flint sends the Polarian away while he faces off with a Mintakan, speaking to the Canopian Master via radio. Flint desperately tries to communicate with the ancients' Kirlian technology to gain its secrets while avoiding laser fire and tentacle grabs, sidestepping in directions the Mintakan has trouble maneuvering. However, its bulk is greater, its muscles tougher, its lasers more dangerous. He gets the Kirlian machine to create doppelgangers, which temporarily distracts the bladed creature then he begins reciting what he's learned over the radio to the Canopian master, so the whole place can be brought down on top of their enemy, for the Mintakin is clearly an agent of Andromeda. When most of the recitation is done, the bombing outside begins. The chamber is ruptured, Flint's air escapes out of the holes in his suit, and he collapses. Chapter 10. Blinding the Giant
2: ALARM! PRIORITY DEVELOPMENT! OUT WITH IT! ANCIENT MODE TRANSFER FROM Hyades OPEN CLUSTER!
3: DISASTER! INITIATE COUNCIL AVAILABLE ENTITIES!
2: TOO LATE! MILKY WAY GALAXY HAS MASTERED ANCIENT TECHNOLOGY! OUR AGENT FAILED! WE ARE HELPLESS!
3: RECALL ALL AGENTS FROM THAT GALAXY IMMEDIATELY! WE MAY BE ABLE TO SALVAGE SOMETHING!
2: BUT THAT WOULD MEAN SURRENDERING OUR ENERGY TRANSFER STATIONS!
3: THAT'S RIGHT! WE'LL HAVE TO GAMBLE BY LEAVING THEM IN PLACE AND PUTTING ALL OUR PERSONNEL ON ALERT! POWER! No disconnect! Flint wakes up in a body that is very loud,
0: every limb capable of music, like a tambourine or a harp. His sonar radar perception slowly informs him that a porous ceiling above reveals the heavens, and he locates himself as being in Sphere Mintaka, of all places, very far away from his home sphere. The ancient sight must have allowed him to transfer out before his body was destroyed. Now he is confused about the Mintaken imposter he faced off against. They were at once not a transferee, but also not a proper Mintakan, as his musical body now proved. Paradox. Then again, the first diplomat killed was from Sphere Merzim, the only one that knew anything about Sphere Mintaka. Flint now realizes what he did not in the heat of battle. The bladed snake of a creature that had a Kirlian aura as powerful as his own. It had been none other than the female assassin. The Andromeda galaxy had spent untold riches matter-mitting her real body to the Milky Way in order to prevent proper exploration of the ancient site. A nurse comes over on castanet feet and plays music that is their language. Flint is in a spare body, ready to receive Kirlian transferees now that transfer technology has been spread so far. She takes him out to a little car, and they ride through the beautiful countryside, eventually coming to a residence and going inside. The nurse explains that this is a mating chamber. At first Flint box, not in the mood to go through the song and dance of another culture when he has information to send back to Sphere Soul. but the other Mintakin reveals herself to be the Andromedan assassin, having brought him somewhere completely private. Now Flint perceives her aura. They are both trapped here, their bodies destroyed. She still plans to kill him, since he has dangerous ancient information in his head the Ancients colonized an entire galactic cluster. She explains that Andromeda had an energy crisis as well as a big problem with cultural regression. So the spheres had decided to join together, suck the Milky Way dry, and create an even greater civilization than that of the Ancients. Just as Flint called for the ancient site to be destroyed to save his galaxy, so Andromeda seeks to destroy the Milky Way to save their civilization. How different are their actions in the grand scheme of the universe to killing a dinosaur for its hide? The Andromedan believes Flint's people would have done the same to her galaxy if they had found the energy transfer technology first. Flint can't help but agree. He doesn't like the truth, but he acknowledges it, as he acknowledges that Soul may be inferior to places like Polaris. The Andromedan assassin is a little unsure how to proceed, surprised by him, and deprived of her blades. Though Flint's tricks on Spika made her too late to prevent Sphere Mintaka from gaining transfer technology, and she failed to prevent Flint from reading off valuable formulas to the Canopian, she can still kill him here. For that would prevent him from sending his last formula to anyone, the secret of involuntary transfer hosting, forcing one's aura onto a conscious host. Though he teases her a bit, she isn't afraid to use her musical body to blast him with a sound that nearly knocks him unconscious. However, it turns out she really plans to just let his aura fade. They're both stuck here, and their auras will give out before long. Flint feels very empty, having lost his homeworld and his fiance in the course of becoming a galaxy savior, and doesn't want to fight anymore, even though she's a hardened intergalactic agent trained to accept genocide. To try and touch her softer side, Flint begins telling her stories about the constellations, all the lovely mythology. The two entities are at once almost as different from each other physically as possible, yet their minds and auras are similar, and both cultures are sharp and direct. Both of them gave up the life they would have had for the sake of saving their galaxies. They have both killed and raped in some fashion
1: to achieve their goals. Did you mean it, about the morality of your species being no better than ours? She asks. Yes? Flint says,
0: forcing himself to speak the truth.
1: I may have been more cynical at the outset, but my experiences in other bodies and other cultures have changed me. In Canopus, I learned that to be humanoid was not to be superior. In Spica, I found three sides to any question. In Polaris, I appreciated circularity. I have learned that there are many validities, and like the terrorists, I find myself concluding that they all are proper. If I went to Galaxy Andromeda, I would probably come to appreciate that reality too. I am not the same entity I was, either as an individual or a species.
0: Flint concludes the tale of Orion and tells the Andromedan about Artemis the Huntress, who was also a musician and skilled at everything save love. She killed Orion when he dared touch her. They banter about this in their situation and admit that they have at least 60 days here with their depleted Curlean auras.
1: What will we do to pass the time? Flint wonders. Make love? I suspected you would think of that, she replies. It seems to be characteristic of males all over the universe. Even here, where there are no sexes, some entities are constantly eager to make music together.
0: She assures him that their auras will fade quickly now that their bodies are dead. Maybe a few hours more, actually. Like the draining of blood.
1: It is ironic, but perhaps fitting, that the two most intense Kirlian entities in our galactic cluster should terminate quietly together,
0: she says, and further talk reveals that she, too, has been affected by Flint's presence, their auras always interacting despite such differing species. They are attracted to each other's very essence.
1: You are the professional huntress, well able to live and die without romance, Flint says. What do you really want of me?
0: the Andromedan is torn. On the one hand, they both long to consummate their attraction and produce a child that is as close to their auras as possible. And on the other, she needs his eidetic memory that stored all he learned from the ancient site. Perhaps they could share everything he learned with both galaxies to stop the fighting. She has wanted to suggest this for a while now, but needed him to trust her a bit more. Flint thought he was softening her up. Then again, she is fighting her conditioning in order to be here with him and try to be soft. To prove it, she unlocks the door. She gives him information on how to broadcast the ancient information to Andromeda, if he doesn't trust her to do it and needs to lock her up. At first, Flint leaves and locks the door, but quickly returns. She is surprised, and he admits that he no longer trusts either galaxy with this information. They close the door and decide that the child to come of their union will be named Melody. Melody. epilogue. The experiment failed. Melody the Mintaken, though child of Flint and the Slash Agent, had a normal intensity aura and was a normal, neuter person. The family lived a happy life away from everything the parents quickly forgot. Meanwhile, the Andromedan threat was pushed out of the Milky Way galaxy. Sphere Soul gained notoriety and spread to an enormous size, becoming the hub of civilization until it nearly collapsed. The greatest planet to emerge was Outworld, led towards vast technological advances by Chief Honeyflint and his descendants, creating a vigorous society of humans and Polarians known as Imperial Outworld within what was now called Sphere Edamon. It grew even more until it stabilized as a segment of the galactic disk, 10,000 light-years from edge to edge transfer technology was improved and one person could occupy another's mind, the two existing in symbiosis that extended the range of the transferee tenfold. While the Milky Way learned this, the Andromeda galaxy finally figured out how to impose transfer onto a hostage mind called Possession. A new war then began, and the strongest Kirlian entity ever known was needed. This turned out to be a many times great descendant of Flint and the Andromedan female, with an intensity of 223 by the inherited name of Melody. The End. Before we get into the discussion, I will quickly note that there are two diagrams at the back of this book. I'm not sure why they're not at the front, but whatever. One shows a star map of Sphere Sol, including Earth's solar system at the center and places like the Hyades and Edelman, where Outworld is, at the edges. The second map is more useful for story purposes. <laughs> it shows the distribution of spheres within this arm of the Milky Way galaxy. On the far left is a, a Sphere Sador at about 500 light years across, dwarfing everything nearby. Next to it are spheres like Antares and Polaris, uh, which are pretty big, and smaller ones like Spica, Sol, and Canopus. Then Nath is next, about the same as Polaris, followed by smaller Bellatrix, then larger Mirzum, and finally Mintaka on the far right. Mintaka is separated from the others with no overlap, but is as big as Sidor on the opposite side. If you're listening on YouTube, I have added these images to the video. Now it's time for our favorite game. Did the cover artist read the book? I am absolutely sure that Ron Walatsky did. He's already one of my favorite artists, so it's no surprise how much I love the covers. I also have Anthony's Of Man and Manta series uh, by the same artist. Uh, Book one cluster depicts many scenes from the story on an awesome background of sunrises and sunsets. The front cover features scenes from Flint's trip to Capella to meet Queen Bess, has a castle and a blue-skinned Elizabethan queen, as well as Flint riding in a chariot drawn by a dragon. All of it beautifully rendered in Wolotski's high fantasy meets sci-fi style. The back cover is a little more mixed. To the right is a shining, smooth city that I believe belongs to Sphere Polaris, featuring a ramp that comes to the foreground. On the ramp is a teardrop-shaped silver creature that is definitely a Polarian-like Soapy. She is wheeling down to a sandy place where a Triceratops stands at the ready, representing Old Snort from Chapter 1. In the background are some other symbols, as well as uh, some improvised scenery of rocks and the ocean. To the left is a hooded, robed figure coming out of a cave, carrying a lantern, which seems to represent Flint's tarot card, the Hermit. Tarot cards are a major uh, theme throughout the books, even though they're only introduced about halfway through this one. Behind the Polarian are some other robed figures huddled together ominously. I think these must represent the unknown races from the Andromeda Galaxy, whose correspondence we see at the beginning of most chapters, discussing how to bring about the downfall of the Milky Way. The name of Book 2, Chaining the Lady, refers to Princess Andromeda, who was chained to a rock as a sacrifice in Greek mythology, also in reference to the hostile galaxy that must be defeated. The sacrificial part reminds us that Flint believes the Milky Way would have been equally hostile if that coalition of species had discovered energy transfer technology first, since they are all desperate to cut down on cultural regression through extensive matter mission. It's also worth noting that the myth of the chained princess is a love story, since she marries Perseus after he saves her from uh, the sea monster. This cover shows an insectoid Canopian master in decorated armor with more symbolic figures behind him. There is a woman pouring a jug of water, resembling the astrological symbol Virgo, and another woman with broken chains on her wrists, who is another allusion to Princess Andromeda. Beside her sits uh, another take on a Polarian, this one also shining silver. Tarot cards float by against a starry background, and on the reverse cover we see a space battle ensuing. Book 3, Kirlian Quest, is where I start to know less about the series since I've only made it about a third of the way through it but the basics on the cover are a blue-skinned man uh, in ceremonial garb, standing inside a beautiful cave with his sword, accompanied by a gelatinous creature and an Andromedan slash. Cryptic figures stand in the background. Tarot cards float by. Strange spheres fly through an alien landscape on the back cover. Book four, Thousand Star, is very beautiful. It features three aliens, a blue female creature of either slime or aura, A sort of standing flower with eyes, and a red serpent with many mouths and eyes. They stare towards a black hole. And Book 5, Viscous Circle, shows a man and a woman's face inside a glowing circle in a dark world of spaceships. Uh, I will have to finish this series one day and find out just how crazy it gets. I can tell that whoever owned my copies of Thousand Star and Viscous Circle never got around to reading them either, because the spines were in excellent condition. I folded them so I could scan the covers. Oops. Returning to Book 1, let's review the chapter titles. Most chapters are named after a place or a part of a constellation where Flint is visiting. Chapter 3, Keel of the Ship, takes place in Sphere Canopus. The star Canopus is in the Carina constellation, which is part of the Argo-Navis, the ship belonging to Jason and the Argonauts from Greek mythology, who are mentioned in Cluster Briefly. The keel of the ship is the bottommost part of the hull where all the boards come together. Chapter 4, Lake of Dreams, refers to uh, Lacus Somniorum. Uh, It's a plane on Earth's moon where Flint goes to try and get away from his responsibilities. Chapter 5, Ear of Wheat, is named for the star Spica, which sits in the constellation Virgo, symbolic of the revelations made in that sphere. Chapter 6, Eye of the Charioteer, is named for the star Capella, the Eye of Auriga, the Charioteer. Chapter 7, Tale of the Small Bear, takes place in Sphere Polaris, which is part of Ursa Minor, the small bear, and it's revealed that the character Tzopi's name means small bear. Polaris is also called the North Star. Chapter 9, Daughters of the Titan, takes place in the Hyades star cluster, which are named for the Daughters of Atlas, who is a titan. And Chapter 10, Blinding the Giant, refers to Orion. The exceptions to the constellation rule are Chapter 1, Flint of Outworld, Chapter 2, Mission of Ire, and Chapter 8, Letters of Blood. However, Flint's home star, Edamon, is revealed to be in the Draco constellation, so there's almost a reference there. (laughs) The symbolism of both constellations and tarot cards comes up a lot, and Flint tries to make sense of his life through them, more so than I can do it justice. I decided not to rehash every myth Flint goes over in his mind, from Jason and the Argonauts to the story of Orion and Artemis, however symbolic they are. You can read the book for yourself if if you're really enthusiastic about the symbolism. My script is long enough already. It would be even longer if I covered the rest of the Cluster series, where tarot cards play a huge role that would require a lot more explanation. While it is interesting, I can't say I understand the nuances of tarot uh, to really do it justice here. What did you actually think of the story? Did it take some shocking twists and turns? Hopefully I described it well enough, dense as it was, any more complicated and it wouldn't be worth stuffing into a podcast. And the subject matter goes to some crazy places, (laughs) very hard to summarize while capturing the nuances. Aspects of the story remind me of John Carter, the leading man from Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars series, following a pretty typical sci-fi archetype of a strong stranger in a strange land. Then it resembles the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, with the way Flint has to sift through memories and experiences each time he goes somewhere new, like how Evelyn verse-jumps to gain skills. The variety of creatures and aliens is similar to James White's Sector General series, especially the way Flint deals with varying levels of disgust as he gets used to the alien perspective, sometimes overwhelmed by the instincts forced upon him as well as his own cultural feelings. The doctors at Sector General can use personality tapes that give them temporary alien memories to help them treat foreign patients, but these tapes include worldviews and experiences that are hard to grapple with. Towards the end, Anthony's Cluster begins to look like Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, the novella that inspired John Carpenter's The Thing. And the presence of ancient technology across the galaxy reminds me of The Age of the Pussyfoot, 2001 A Space Odyssey, or even the webcomic Space Boy. The sector general comparison is really prevalent in my mind since I love that series, and it also features humans dealing with lots of alien creatures whose bodies, cultures, and eating habits and reproduction are completely different from ours. Over the course of the series, Flint encounters more than seven species whom he becomes somewhat acquainted with, Insectoid Canopian Masters and their Humanoid Slaves, Underwater Three-Sexed speakins, Round Polarians, Hook-Pulled Nathians, protoplasmic Ontarians, musical Mintakans, and the Andromedan Slash. Some of the individuals Flint meets, like the Canopians, tell him their names, but I can't pronounce them. Literally. The masters have names like H (laughs) colon 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 four, and all the species in the Andromeda Galaxy have symbol names, including the Slash. In the text, the author only refers to the Andromedan's true name with an actual slash mark on the keyboard without writing it out, and we never learn the Andromedan Hykirlian female's true name because Flint wouldn't be able to pronounce it anyway. Her people speak through laser flashes. Again with the similarities to sector general, all these creatures communicate through non-human methods and use fancy translator technology to interpret each language, be it through sound, symbols, or light. It's really amusing in the penultimate chapter when Flint is navigating all the different idioms that are translated literally. It makes it hard to know who the culprit is. Let's read the descriptions of the Polarians and the Slash compiled for Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, since that's where I started this episode. I really love that two of my favorite illustrations from this book are from the same series. There are many beautiful creatures, like the Sinrus, Valantian, Tyrian but I really love Pierce Anthony's cluster creatures, how Barlow painted them. Here is what it says about the Polarion. The Polarian is a teardrop-shaped entity, approximately 1.8 meters tall when fully extended. A muscular socket at the bottom of the body holds a large wheel. At the upper end, the body tapers into a flexible tentacle, called a trunk if the Polarion is male and a tail if female, which terminates in a smaller ball, held in place by a similar socket. Both ball and wheel are spun in their sockets by powerful adhesive muscles. Spinning the wheel, a polarian is capable of moving at speeds approaching 112 kilometers per hour and of rapidly changing direction. By spinning the smaller ball against any hard surface, the polarian can produce a wide range of sounds and is capable of approximating human speech. The polarian's soft and flexible body has no bones. The dark brown skin is smooth and waxy, It acts as a radiation receptor, transmitting sensory information to the Polarion. The Polarion's skin can also radiate light. Its glow reflects the Polarion's emotional state. Here is what is written about the Slash. The Slash are long, tubular entities with manipulating tentacles at either end. Sharp, metallic blades encircle their bodies, used to cut pathways, butcher food, and fight. Between the blades are laser lenses. The slash uses the flickering light of the lasers to see and to communicate. A steady, powerful beam of light can flare out in attack and defense. While the slash has one of the shorter descriptions in the guide, I really love this illustration. The book never talks about their color, and Barlow chose a pinkish-purplish hue that I enjoy. It looks cool with its red eyes and blades. Now let's get into the meat of the story, the stuff that can make it an uncomfortable read. Most importantly, Flint is a challenging character to like sometimes, being a bit of a know-it-all and a flirt, but I think that's mostly intentional. He's supposed to embody all the self-important, misogynistic tendencies of toxic masculinity that other men, like the ministers of Earth, pretend not to adhere to, though over time he learns that women truly suffer from this. Conan the Barbarian needs to learn empathy. Despite all the aliens and technology and space jumping featured in Cluster and its sequels, The real point of the story seems to be that our identities are more than our sex, that they are flexible in more ways than we know. At first, Flint can't imagine being in an alien body. Then he can't imagine mating in an alien body. And he can't imagine wanting to be anything other than what he was born as, or falling in love with anyone he doesn't feel physically attracted to. Every encounter with a female entity, many of whom act as bodies for the mysterious female assassin chasing him, teaches Flint something new about his privilege as a man. He witnesses Klee die at the hands of a sexual sadist. He learned to understand the psychological damage that rape can inflict. We'll come back to these female characters in a bit. In book two, Chaining the Lady, Anthony further explores the two sexes. Although he writes about sexless or multi-sexed aliens, what I've read of the first three books indicates he focused on parallels with humans. We follow a female protagonist named Melody, who is the spiritual descendant of Flint and the Andromedan in Sphere where the two High Kirlian entities lived out their lives, letting their auras fade and the war fall behind them in favor of being together. Gender and sex are explored further in this book, though in ways I think would be considered problematic today, with growing acceptance of gender-neutral and transgender people. Keep in mind that Chaining the Lady was written in 1978, not 2023. Melody starts the story as female, which is considered rather odd, since the Mintakan people always transition to male after mating, though she eventually becomes a he through circumstances that arise. It is a change Melody has been afraid of, and might be an extension of the book's name. Melody becomes male emotionally as well as physically, inhabiting male bodies during identity transfer after this point, and even realizing that he is in love with a female character or two who were introduced earlier. I think Anthony really wanted to play with existing tropes of beautiful men and women in science fiction stories, always falling in love, often with more than one person. The main character embodies aspects of both. I'm not saying that Anthony's work is perfect, but he seemed interested in flexing his brain muscles in interesting directions. His work is an exploration, similar to how it's hard to tell when Robert A. Heinlein was promoting authoritarianism or just exploring a society that is authoritarian in his books. There are still female characters in these books who are nothing but lovely plot fodder, especially the first love interest in book three, Kirlian Quest, and I've read Anthony's book A Spell for Chameleon from his famous Xanth series. In Chameleon, the main character encounters three women a sexy airhead, an appealing lady, and a sharp old woman. Eventually, he discovers that these three are actually the same person, an enchanted woman named Chameleon, who changes back and forth throughout the month. This is clearly a take on women going through emotional changes while on and off their period, sometimes being objects of hormones and desire, sometimes being very nice companions, and sometimes being a bit unpleasant. I was slightly outraged when I first read this book, since it seems like Anthony had oversimplified a woman's value, especially since the main character falls in love with Chameleon, declaring that a man can get tired of any one type of woman, so it's wonderful to have variety. That's not a direct quote, I'm paraphrasing. I thought, wow, the characters are treating this like it's sweet, but it seems kind of creepy to me. However, as I thought about it, I realized that this might be more of a message directed at male readers, reminding them that women's changing emotional state isn't necessarily a bad thing and can be enjoyed if you accept its predictability. Physically female women with powerful period mood swings might indeed have days where they don't feel sexy yet can still be great partners, and other days where they are calm and amicable, and again other days where they just feel great. Anthony's book, though simplified, invites the changes and encourages enjoyment in each one. Although Cluster doesn't exactly pass the Bechdel test, the most important characters besides Flint are female. They all play an important part in his journey towards becoming an understanding man. Is this tropey and obnoxious for us female readers? Yes. Is it a valid storytelling technique? Yes. So let's plot Flint's development through his encounters with women. Flint's first love is a woman named Honeybloom, who was a shy, skinny child who grew up to be a beautiful, voluptuous woman of the Stone Age. Her name comes from the Honeybloom flowers she likes to gather. Nobody wears clothes on Outworld, so Flint was free to admire her as he chose. And Honeybloom was happy to have the affections of a skilled, muscular Flintsmith and shaman's apprentice. The shaman warns Flint that he finds Honeybloom appealing for her looks and won't love her as much after a few years, but Flint disregards him. After being suddenly mattermitted to Earth for his mission as the strongest Kirlian aura in a sphere soul in the whole galaxy, Honeybloom haunts Flint's thoughts whenever he misses his old life of happy, if violent, simplicity. The next lovely lady Flint meets is Klee, a humanoid slave in Sphere Canopus. We don't learn very much about her past, only that she is from a planet where the slaves are a little more independent of mind and she is used as a spy for the masters. When Flint meets her, she has been claimed by a big, rough man, but is quick to flee the plantation with Flint in search of free slaves. Unfortunately, the free slaves they find are far worse than the brute she was with before. Before the masters can arrive in their flying saucers to neutralize the primitive free slave camp, Klee is rendered mindless by the shock of a pain box turned to its highest setting. The closest thing to a leader the Free Slaves have is a sadistic man who wants to keep Klee's mindless body as a toy for his enjoyment. Flint is remorseful, recognizing that this was a spirited young woman of use to society, who almost suffered a fate worse than death. While Flint's infatuation with Honey Bloom represents hormonal puppy love, His appreciation for Pretty Klee starts to wake him up to the realities of women's minds being disregarded while their bodies are treated like objects. His sadness over the situation leads him to visit Klee one more time, giving the Androbinan assassin her first opportunity to try and kill him when she transfers into that mindless body. I will quickly say here that I'm not sure what the science is behind people literally losing their minds and becoming husks due to trauma that doesn't kill them. If you know more about it, please comment on the YouTube video. It might be Anthony's way of justifying the identity transfer technology featured in this book, since only a few cultures have prepared any empty host bodies. Flint is traumatized by his experience in Sphere Canopus. His success was largely thanks to the Assassin's presence, making the Canopians aware their privacy will be invaded more often if they don't outright defend it. He tries to run away, but fails, and is sent to Sphere Spica, where the fish-like people mate in groups of three. The female-equivalent undulant named Liana, who his assassin inhabits on her chase after him, is mindless at the same time Flint's host is, so he doesn't have a chance to meet an actual woman-equivalent person here. However, he does come to understand how horrible it is to have a sexual encounter forced upon you, especially if it results in an unwanted child. After this ordeal, Flint goes on a little vacation. Though he's not allowed back to Outworld, he instead goes to Capella, a regressed world with a culture consisting of medieval, renaissance, Victorian, and Elizabethan practices. He encounters blue-skinned Queen Bess, and attracts her attention, and is very glad to discover she is much younger than her thick makeup would suggest. The pair enjoy a few weeks of pleasure before Flint gets back to work, and he decides Honeybloom wouldn't mind if he has a little fun since he doesn't love the Queen. Although Flint doesn't have any particularly deep thoughts during this chapter, it is clear that Bess is a woman of extreme power and influence, a woman with a high Kirlian aura who enjoys the play of politics. Despite coming from a Stone Age world, Flint respects her authority. Next, Flint travels to Sphere Polaris and reunites with Soapy, the Polarian who was stationed on Outworld for a short time to observe Flint's High Kirlian Aura. By getting involved with the old snort dinosaur hunt, she ended up becoming debt siblings with him. Since they are completely different cultures and species, Flint watches her go with satisfaction, while Tzopi keeps Flint in her mind, for Polarians handle debt in a very different way. For them, the individual's needs are placed above those of society, since society cannot function well if the individual is unfulfilled. Debt ties individuals together, tangling things up so politics cannot move forward until everything is worked out. The Big Wheel oversees Sphere Polaris and these debt fulfillment processes. Unfortunately, Flint has had a couple tricky transfers and is determined to fulfill his mission as soon as possible, to put the galaxy's needs above his own or soapy's. Also, the thought of debt being fulfilled through reproduction is repulsive to his human sensibilities, like prostitution for the sake of political movement. He thinks he's doing a morally good thing for himself, Soapy, and Honey Bloom all at once. But really, he's being stubborn and ethnocentric. I mean, it's a host body, so it's not even technically his biological offspring the big wheel orchestrates the situation so that flint has enough time to realize his error including giving him the opportunity to see a human through polarian perceptions Soapy is prevented from dying as customarily happens when a debt is not fulfilled since it weighs too heavily on polarian individuals and flint apologizes for being so hard-headed The loss of Klee, the breakdown of his superiority as a man, and the realization that humans are just another alien race have all prepared him to relinquish some sense of control he was holding onto, even being willing to join Soapy in death at the expense of his mission. Fortunately, that doesn't happen, and he experiences brief yet powerful love with Soapy. Then the two part ways. His mind is open to the true beauty of species and cultures outside his own. Finally, Flint has the opportunity to visit his old home of Outworld, though only as a transferee. This is when he discovers that Honeybloom has become the opposite of what she was. He always remembered her as beautiful, young and fresh, ready to be his bride. But she has become sad, saggy and damaged. She was apparently pregnant when Flint was suddenly torn away from his old life, and now has become an unwed mother driven only by the desire to keep her son alive, an outcast from all tribes and villages. Flint recognizes that the attraction he had for Honey Bloom was mostly based on her very particular looks, but he always knew she was energetic and sweet and a bit mischievous. Now she has lost something of herself as well as her looks, wizened by the hard work it takes to survive alone. Once and for all, Flint is forced to realize that the women in his life are more than their bodies. He loves Honey Bloom for taking care of their son despite it all. He sees how unfair it was that the culture he was born into forces sex onto women, then discards them for the consequences. A society based on the success and follow-through of men so easily leaves people behind. So, Flint makes amends the only way he can, ensuring that Honeybloom is known as Flint's widow, that her son will have his pension, and that she will be brought back into the village, that their son will be guided by the Earthborn shaman. The epilogue states that the child grows up to be called Honey Flint, that he becomes the next chief, and that Outworld eventually becomes the center of a sphere of influence called Sphere Edemon that replaces Sphere Soul. The whole galaxy benefits from Flint paying child support. <laughs> At first, I hated the name Honeybloom, but I think its overly flowery nature is on purpose. All the names of Outworld are simple, Flint is a flintsmith, Fat Club is strong, The Shaman is wise about the stars, so it's not strange that Honeybloom has a pretty name. That's straightforward enough, but Honeybloom, it's so sugary, syrupy, sweet. And then I realized that it reminds me of another ironic name, Buttercup. The princess featured in The Princess Bride by William Golding is part of a larger parody fantasy story that both loves its genre and pokes fun at it. Buttercup is supposed to be the most princessy name possible. In the same way, I think Honey Bloom is supposed to be the most perfect girly name possible. She starts the story as the embodiment of Flint's understanding of love, nice on the eyes and the body, and at the end, she still acts as a gauge for his growth for he's learned to see her as more than a piece of ass and is confronted with her suffering. Honeybloom is no longer in the bloom of youth, though Flint admits she'll probably do very well for herself once her status in the tribe is restored and she is able to marry again, as she is still quite young. Let's keep in mind that despite everything Flint learns about women, Cluster only features young ones. Honeybloom is 21 years old, tops, by the time Flint says his goodbye. And finally, we have the Andromedan Slash, who turns out to be the high Kirlian assassin Flint has been dodging most of the book. His feelings about her are very confused, because he has trouble separating this alien person from the pretty bodies he's seen her in. First humanoid Klee, then fish-like liana but eventually he realizes that the real attraction is that she is his spiritual equal. They are both ruthless, willing to kill and harm others to fulfill their missions. They both exist on a higher frequency than anyone else they've ever met, the search for someone like each other being the big draw of identity transfer technology for them. We can infer that her Andromedan slash body is also exceptionally good-looking, though Flint only sees it through his human eyes and therefore can't judge. I love that Anthony chose to make the leading lady's true form be something not only completely inhuman, but also terrifying, a combat creature, as Flint puts it. In subsequent books, the Slash are even referred to as serpents of temptation and danger. It takes him a long time to think the Slash assassin is the same female he's been tangled up with, giving him the opportunity to appreciate her sharp mind separate from anything else. He already knew she was smart and determined, naturally as well as through brainwashing, but this makes it very clear since they've never had a proper conversation before. Everything Flint's been through up till now has opened him up to the possibility of loving another person not for their body at all, but for their mind and essence. By the final chapter, Flint has lost his own fine specimen of a human body and is confronted with choosing a life with his ex-assassin over everything else. No career, no sexy wife, no strong muscles, no more heroism, nothing. Just her. It's fitting that they end up in musical Mintakan bodies that let them fully communicate all this, symbolic of the music they will make together through simply choosing each other. Love is about connection, and that creates the best sexual encounters. Rereading this book was fun, because I could see all the little clues that point to the assassin's true identity. If you're paying attention, it becomes clear that the slash who shows up at the end of the book is lying about its identity. It says it's from Sphere Mintaka, but earlier in the story, that sphere is disregarded as being unimportant, only interested in music, which doesn't seem to match the dangerous physicality of the slash. And during the Andromeda correspondence the reader witnesses at the beginning of each chapter, it's mentioned that no laser flasheth hotter than that of a female slash wronged. However, the word slash isn't actually typed out, it's just the slash key on the keyboard. You have to connect the dots yourself, that the long, sharp creature at the end of the story communicates with laser beams, referring back to this conversation. The who-done-it chapter isn't perfect, I mean, who else could it be but the creature covered in blades ripping up spacesuits, but I appreciate that the clues are provided beforehand. The assassin also slips up at one point, using the classic Andromedan response, Concurrence. Returning to my point about Flint, he not only has to come to terms with his own wrong ideas about women, but also his wrong ideas about men. There are many instances of Flint being repulsed by something he's told to do or wear that he's always associated with women, only to learn that that is outworld culture, not the culture he is visiting. On Earth, they cut their nails and wear tunics, while Flint thinks a tunic is a feminine dress, and short fingernails are too delicate for a manly hunter. On Capella, he doesn't want to wear feminine jewelry, but it is actually a masculine pocket watch. Anthony makes a point of including very human moments amidst all these alien experiences, so Flint can come to terms with the fluidity of masculine and feminine styles over the course of history. Anthony seems to really like playing with readers' expectations. He does this not only with gender, but also with the societal structures presented in the story. Flint has to get used to other cultures, other worldviews, other methods of negotiation. His first big shock comes from visiting Sphere Canopus, where the insectoid masters rule over humanoid slaves. It's hard for Flint to accept this status quo, especially since he identifies physically with the slaves, but learns that the masters saved the slaves from their own destructive tendencies. The first time I read Cluster, I thought it was kind of insensitive of Anthony to suggest that a slave race could exist happily. But this time I realized that this part of the book is really commentary on humanity as it exists now, in the 20th and 21st centuries. The humanoid slaves were breeding like crazy, constantly warring with each other, using up their resources. Flint even briefly recognizes the resemblance to his own people, though he lives in the future, where Sphere Soul and Earth have more or less worked out these issues. As a person living in 2023 amidst climate crises and social unrest, it's hard not to see Anthony's point. Will we ever get ourselves reined in without the help of overlords? This is further explored in works like Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End and the film The Day the Earth Stood Still. You might also go back and listen to my YouTube bonus episode on The Music of Marie for more insight into this topic. As for the alien procreation scenes, these serve to break Flint's ethnocentric hold on what he perceives as right and wrong. This kind of goes alongside his blossoming relationships with women so I won't dwell on it too long, but I do think it's hilarious that at the end of the book he describes the human act of intimacy to his Andromedan soulmate. <laughs> In comparison to everything he's witnessed, the human version sounds rather gross, and I decided to spare you all the details. He is able to talk about his <coughs> manhood with an admirable degree of humor and self-awareness, having come to terms with a human capacity for violence towards women. Cluster is one of those books that really encapsulates the idea that it's really important where a story ends, not where it begins. Like in Beauty and the Beast, there is a lot of problematic behavior, but the male character grows exponentially over the course of the story. Also, as much as we can talk about Flint's abhorrent actions, we do need to remember that this is essentially a war story. Governments are all capable of evil, individuals kill and rape to reach their goals. By being attracted to each other's aura, Flint and the Andromedan Slash manage to sift through the terrible things they have each done and make a mutual decision to try and create some sort of peace. Yes, that technology is eventually found, but full intergalactic war is put off for several centuries, according to the epilogue. Flint awakens to the realities of life, both in the Stone Age and in the Modern Age the Andromedan fights through her indoctrination, like Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender or Rose from American Dragon Jake Long? The answer they find is, of course, love. That being said, I'll touch on the things I think Anthony failed to portray well or to include at all. Of course, some things can be attributed to him being a seemingly heterosexual man writing in the 70s, but that doesn't mean I can't acknowledge them. First of all, the portrayal of homosexual behavior isn't very good. Even if Anthony wasn't himself homophobic, and even if he's writing about it better in subsequent stories I've yet to read, sex and gender within Cluster leans heavily towards the binary, or the quote-unquote norm, despite the inclusion of sexless and multi-sexed aliens. It comes up during Flint's time in Sphere Spica, when he weaponizes sex three different times. Once by accident, wandering into an area he shouldn't be while well, getting oriented in his new body, once on purpose to neutralize the authorities, and again on purpose to force his would be assassin into being stuck caring for a child for a while. Reminder about this being a story about intellectual as well as physical warfare. Flint has a big revelation while he's a fish, fully comprehending what it's like to experience involuntary intimacy since the three-sexed Speakins have such a powerful biological mating urge that they have to physically segregate themselves. Considering the slavery discussion about the previous chapter, it's interesting that Anthony then wrote about necessary segregation, isn't it? (laughs) Unfortunately, Flint then uses his knowledge to inflict psychological harm on the authorities who come after him. As three impacts, they have no need to mate yet he initiates emergence that is so horrifying to them that it knocks them out and repulses Flint immensely. It's even suggested that those two will probably never tell anyone, since the shame and horror is too great. Other than being an exploration of what abnormal encounters in a three-sex system would look like, I don't really have any defense for this portrayal. (laughs) It disregards the fact that homosexual behavior is common in animals as well as humans, so probably would be on other planets too. It's almost funny that in a super future world of space empires, homosexuality would still be such a taboo. (laughs) While Anthony made an interesting point about rape, something akin to the alien movies in which the xenomorphs plant their offspring in captured humans, there are some holes where the story relies on a gender binary. Moving on. I originally made a note about how it's just a given that the Andromedan assassin will be compelled to stay in Sphere Spica with a child created by the forced union, since the bonds of motherhood, parenthood, are too strong to deny. But then I remembered that that was mostly Flint's perspective. The assassin does stay a while, but is eventually replaced by another Andromedan transferee so she can get on with her mission. She may even have only stayed to avoid getting caught by the authorities. This actually hammers home the point made at the end of the book that the assassin has previously divorced herself from having a normal life, love, and anything resembling a family, but wishes to leave war behind and be with Flint in a foreign body. It seems that the speakin' child they helped create was not the result of a true merging of auras, since it was forced by circumstance, and their later Mintakin union was a true connection that eventually produced the next galactic hero. While all this is in itself a trope, I won't hash it all out. There are a lot of ideas in this book like this one that I have to pause and think about. Did Anthony include it so it can be read at face value? Or is the reader supposed to contemplate how silly it is to get wrapped up in cultural norms? In Sphere Polaris, Flint learns that male Polarians can be tortured by being given a ball instead of a wheel so that they look like females, many of them choosing to die rather than face ridicule while growing another full-sized wheel. Is this just pointing out that many cultures find the comparison to women demeaning? Or should we make a note that it's a silly, baked-in perception? Like believing a dress, skirt, kilt, robe, gown, or whatever will make someone less of a man. Flint makes the comment that men are men, regardless of species. So I'm not totally sure, especially since males and females always transfer into a body of their own sex, unless the host species doesn't have a binary. I think this gets explored more in future books, but in Cluster it's a bit rigid. That being said, I know for sure that the book is trying to point out how ridiculous it is to prefer men over women. The ministers of Imperial Earth don't even want to use their number two operative because it's a woman preferring a man they believe is an ignorant, uncivilized, stupid cave person. It's such blatant prejudice, and all rulers express similar sentiments at some point. The Big Wheel comments on how cute Soapy is. The Andromedan Council decides to put the female assassin through reorientation training to ensure she does not fall in love with Flint. Like I said earlier, every single female character is beautiful, and the male characters simply can't ignore that fact. I can't decide if Anthony thought it was flattering or was poking fun at how this trope is constant in science fiction. I have at least eight books on my shelf that call the female character beautiful just in the back cover description, with no mention of what the main male character looks like. There is a pattern here. Anthony really wanted to tackle taboo subjects in Cluster. The next one is sex work, or what Flint initially perceives of as such. While I think it's a bit extreme that Sophie planned to die if her debt bond with Flint went unfulfilled, it does force Flint to realize that sex as social currency isn't really that bad. In fact, it's far more pleasant and infinitely less violent than what humans do when they have problems like going to war. I wonder if Pierce Anthony knew about bonobos. They're a type of primate closely related to humans that are similar to chimpanzees but less violent. Anyway, I appreciate that Anthony imagined a society where there is no marriage, no long-lasting partnerships, and no parents since children roll off on their own immediately. Soapy the Polarian is a completely free female agent. That being said, it's even stranger that the Big Wheel comments on how pretty she is since you'd think a transactional society like this wouldn't care too much about that sort of thing. But I'm not going to twist my brain around in knots thinking about it right now. Same goes for Flint's men are men comment. It is important to note that Sophie is the only character in the book who Flint gets to see from both his human perspective, when she looks like a dinosaur turd, and his alien perspective, when he can understand how pretty she is. He's really come a long way in terms of alien understanding. Let's circle back around to the book's uncomfortable amount of involuntary sexual contact, which I don't want to gloss over and which Flint actually acknowledges. People are seduced as often as they are killed for any number of reasons. It reflects the messy reality of war Flint is fighting without a proper front line. Flint's preoccupation with Greek mythology and constellations makes sense in the context of the story, since the Greek gods were known for a lot of good and bad amorous behavior. Interestingly, the most significant mythological figure, Princess Andromeda, is a victim in her original story, but the galaxy bearing her name is the one penetrating the Milky Way and stealing its virtue in the form of energy. There's a sort of terrible give and take at work here. The most powerful beings are still always male, ministers and rulers and council members. But again, I think this is supposed to reinforce Flint's conclusion at the end, where he opts to spend his remaining time with his Kirlian soulmate and say, screw all the rest. After all, he killed two people within a day of starting his first mission in Sphere Canopus, a slave and a master. He's lucky, yes, but not a talented diplomat. I don't want to say that his behavior in Sphere Spica was acceptable, but I want to point out that both Flint and the Slash Assassin kill several innocent people over the course of the story, both on purpose and accidentally. These are warriors who accept the wounds they give and take. And finally, before I end this discussion, I want to mention that this is a very typical western sci-fi story in that basic earth humans are described as very much pale, (laughs) what we think of as white. Flint is green-skinned and Queen Bess is blue-skinned, but earthlings are pale. In this case, it is meant to reflect the ministers' perception of themselves as clean, tidy, and advanced, and Flint's opinion that they are worm-like but I want to point out that it is unlikely that Earthlings would continue to be so pale so far in the future. It's more likely they would still be diverse, or maybe brown. I can only equate this to the presence of smoking, extreme gender roles, and lack of LGBTQA plus behavior in books like this due to the time they were written in. At least Flint isn't a red-headed Irishman still experiencing prejudice on spaceships like I've seen in Jack L. Chalker's work. (laughs) probably an attempt to make pasty white people understand that prejudice is stupid but i think it's better to feature diversity when possible not every story is zootopia or mouse where animals can be neatly used as substitutes and flint being a different color than the ministers is definitely a deliberate choice his green skin reminds me of a treyu from the never ending story who is coded as native american despite his fantasy appearance now Before we wrap up, is there anything I left out of the summary? Aside from the occasional character that would weigh down the shortened version, I mostly skipped over a few terms. For example, the Ministers of Imperial Earth have individual titles that I didn't bother with. The Imperial Guards and Ambassadors are referred to as Imps by non-Central Sphere soul residents. It's also hard to capture the humor of the story without reading out long passages and dialogue. Anthony really enjoys puns and wordplay, much of it coming from the main character's internal worldview and coping mechanisms. For example, the ancient planet towards the end of the book is called Gondolf IV, but Flint refers to it as God-awful 4. The discourse between aliens is also great, which I touched on. Creatures of all different walks or roles or slithers of life use translators that sometimes get a little too literal, and characters have to work through foreign metaphors and idioms. The discourse at the end of the book is very good, since seven different entities converse, trying to solve a murder mystery while not knowing much about each other. Similarly, there are details about the alien languages that would take too long to describe. Flint makes note of fascinating grammar and intonations that add layers to what characters say, which are impossible to directly translate. The Canopian masters and slaves have many layers that indicate their various hierarchies. The Mintakan language is a symphony of complexities. And I struggled with whether or not to include the term Solarian, referring to people from Sphere Soul. I thought it would be too difficult for listeners to differentiate between Polarian and Solarian, so I stuck with the term human. Really, this is a very visual novel, since there are names that can be easily mixed up and names that have no pronunciation. Pierce Anthony really stuffed as much into this novel as he possibly could. And it's only one of five... And we're done for today. Uh, it was really fun to revisit Cluster, but I'm happy to put it back on the shelf with its sequels. Did you enjoy the story? Did you think it was really sexist? Did you think it made a good point about anything? Let me know in the YouTube comments. Don't forget to subscribe. I'm so happy to be back at it for season two of the Fantasy podcast and hope to cover lots more weird books like this one. Find me on Instagram and let me know what you want to hear about. Until next time. Bye bye,
3: earthlings!